Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. Oh my God, what have you missed so far by me not hitting record? You've missed Merrin doing an impression of the crazy frog. You've missed Dorman. Tell your joke again. It's going to make you a famous comedian. Well, more so than I already am. Exactly. Um, so I actually left out a line. So have, have you heard about the academic scarecrow who got tenure? He was outstanding in his field. Boom, <laughs> <laughs> boom. That's like the director's cut of the version you've just told us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Extra three minutes. But perhaps most galling for all of you at home is the fact that you miss Kit reenacting Judge Dredd. Go on, Kit, do it again. That was brilliant. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> do the bit where Sylvester Stallone loses his shit and doesn't use words anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Uncanny. So or you could say pleased. we've been away for a few weeks and nothing has changed. Apart from a newcomer, there is a newcomer in the room. God help him. Poor Josh Proven of Historyland, who comes on quite frequently and covers gaps in history that I can't be bothered to and therefore is my hero, uh, has decided to jot down to the pub. Um, he doesn't drink, doesn't swear. He's a very good boy. And I feel he's going to be ruined by one session in this room with us. Uh, but he's looking quite excited about it, which I'm quite proud of. Oh, look. It's, it's, it's so nice to be amongst so many people virtually. It's a fascinating experience. I know. Oh, look, they're all so excited to ruin you as well. Uh, right, OK. <laughs> Speaking of, well, practical stranger. Challenge expected. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dorman, where have you been? Uh, where have I been? I've been, well, I spent the last three weeks probably at a barber getting my mane chopped off. Um, other than that, I've been in lockdown permanently. We've had a great lockdown here in Ireland, the longest in Europe. Woo. Um, and we're slowly coming out of it. We haven't opened pubs yet, and when we do, the world will end um so this is a nice sort of preparatory argument but on the plus i'll be vaccinated soon and i can come to the uk and steal your archives excellent yay <laughs> put in the chat so that history land she thought it was dan snow in disguise on the twitter <laughs> <gasps> audible gasp <laughs> dan snow doesn't want anything to do with me it's been made very clear well we do <laughs> <laughs> we love you uh, right Thank who you. else is with us today Heather took the day off work to prep for this well possibly not just to prep for this but she did take a day off work you're right Heather doing great apart from the fact that your uh, cat is trying to hump the face with its rear end pretty much <laughs> joys of being a cat mom yep Alina is in the house she's got her camera off which makes me think she's eating 
Um, yeah, you're right, eating and having a drink and, uh, yeah, trying to de-stress. <laughs> Is that possible? Have you got to go and make yourself look nice for Chris before you can put the camera on? Dude, I look like the biggest hobo right now. I don't care. I've stopped caring. Oh, I did this morning and then I went and had my hair done and she de-hobified me. So I'm smug right now. Hmm. As someone who always has lovely hair is Charlie. You're right, Charlie. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. The roots need doing, but I've I've cleverly hidden it with a scarf. Dude, I've seen you wandering around your kitchen at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning in your pajamas, and your hair still looks fabulous. <laughs> oh, Thank <people>. you. <laughs> I try. How is Charlie life? It's all right. It's all right. It's um, throwing it down here in Bedford, and I just want to go to the pub. So. Yeah, it's all it's all good. Same as everywhere else, I guess. Brilliant. You have uh, put porn in the group chat on Twitter in the form of the most awesome looking key lime pie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, uh, we were having a conversation about what is key lime pie a pie or a cake? It's not or a pie, is it? It's not really a pie. I think it's more akin to quiche. This blew like, my it's mind. Eggs in it. It's called it's eggs. It's a tart. It's a tart. <laughs> <laughs> We all like a bit of a tart, don't we, Clive? We do indeed. Speaking of people who like a bit of tart, Chris. <laughs> Obi Dinge Canoe. How's Medway? You're surrounded by them. Oh, just alienating. Yeah, them. they're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you're not missing anything. It's a hole. <laughs> you can't, can't go out of your house without walking into a dangly clown necklace, can you? No, God, no. And big hoop earrings with the parrots in them. Yeah, it's awful. I've got those. I, I dread. Right? I dread my daughter growing up. Oh well, James. James has gone. James appears to be on his way to Medway. No, I'm lying. I'm lying. James, <laughs> where have you been? What have you been up to? Um, past month, I've been mainly doing interviews and such for for teacher training, and I've had two unconditionals, and I've confirmed my choice today. Oh. So. Also, thank you to Zach last night for giving me a bit of extra, well, last night or the night before, for a bit of extra perspective. I'm glad you specified what you were thanking him for. (laughs) (laughs) Marcus has just entered the room and it was not going to end. It was going to end smutty. I mean, he was literally with me all of uh, Tuesday night, but that's a whole different thing. Look at you, Rock. I love it. Look at Marcus. He's got, what is that? A tweed jacket, a check shirt, flowery wallpaper and a glass of Chardonnay. (laughs) <laughs> he looks like he's just—he um, looks like he's just been auditioning for Bargain Hunt, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I—I've just realised something. Marcus needs to bring Monty on the camera. Oh, we all need to there, see yeah. You haven't collected him, have you? No, no. That's a that's a whole oh. other thing. Next week, I, you won't keep me off him. Yeah, that this is a a small dog type thing that's going to live with Marcus and is intended going to end up dressed in tweed on his walks and stuff. Uh, Not just outfits have you ordered for this puppy so far? Yeah, the other half has uh, been buying the presents and toys and it's all tweed and pheasants and ducks and stereotypical country stuff that you guys will just love. I'm just, I'm looking at some of the socialists in the room and their faces, <laughs> just like biting their tongues furiously. Actually, I think I see blood coming out of Clive's mouth. Clive, how are you? I'm very well, though rather perturbed, because I discovered this week from Matt Bone that apparently you're meant to wear trousers when on Zoom. Wish someone had told me that at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> Have you just been sitting there in your pants, Clive? 
Well, I mean, I don't kind of show my legs off. I'm not like Beth. <laughs> I would say, please say yes, Clive, because the idea of you saying no, you hadn't got, got anything on is even worse than you not just having your trousers. Speak for yourself. Some of us is, are quite is this hard a, up. Is Keep this your <laughs> yourself, Marilyn. <laughs> is this some sort of Zoom equivalent of Schrodinger's cat? Because unless he is actually going to demonstrate, he could. Oh, yeah. Be. Oh, yeah. We'll leave an air of mystery there. Oh, full barrelman, come on. <laughs> oh, Clive, you've got a ticket for Saturday, haven't you? I have indeed. And I went to get tested today Did for you? my COVID test to go. Like the nearest COVID testing place to us is at Arsenal's football ground. Oh, they and they very kindly scarf, gave me an they? Arsenal scarf. <laughs> Aren't you more likely to catch COVID from Arsenal? Than... Well, possibly. Well, at least if you run out of goose feathers, Clive. That's true. I got something to. Wipe and go. You think you're behind with. Uh, Zach, on that note, how are you doing? How's I am um, well, apart from uh, bickering with Princess, things uh, just kind of continue as normal. Yeah, I noticed. Do you know what, though? Let's admit to Princess, who Dorman points out actually looks like continuing to look like a small town BBC detective, he says, which is quite funny. Uh, that cartoon, <laughs> if you see duffing each other up, it originally came with Marcus on top and you being pummeled. And I sent it back to Steve and was like, no, <laughs> we will never fucking hear the end of this. You need to swap that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I like being the dominant one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Marcus, <laughs> argument. Marcus clearly the bottom there. I said, I said who won the uh, the debate, I think, in the end, but uh, we had fun with that one. We couldn't hear you because the podcast man in the room has the shittest Wi-Fi. Beth. Alex. How's the West Midlands? Uh, it's all right. It's not, not as fun as, uh, as uh, my visit down to the pub with you last week. That was the highlight of my year. So down to the real pub. Real Although pub. you do have that biscoffy ice cream tonight. <laughs> I do. I do have Skittles and I do have ice cream waiting for me and wine as well. So it's God. like the trifecta of perfect. <laughs> Adulting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take it John's at work then. No, no, he's okay. not. He's, dead, but he's, he's seen the ice cream and the sweets and he's just going to, I'll just leave you to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going upstairs for my PlayStation. Uh, Holmes. Evening. You're not going to the game because you have a very definite uh, routine for when Chelsea play in the FA Cup final, don't you? I do. I've basically got every kit from about 1997 onwards and a few from before that, like the graphite and tangerine. I've got that as well. And um, I have to hang them up in my lounge on hangers around half the room. But only only for the FA Cup final, not for any European competition or not for the League Cup, because obviously I'm not meant to. And clearly uh, not the new fucking monstrosity that they announced today. I quite like the new one. Oh, oh, oh you're out of your mind. Clive, cast have, have you seen the, th the proposed third one? No. What colour is it? It's not Crystal Palace kit again, is it? No, it's like a sort of psychedelic version of the American kit and the goalie top that goes with it. They're all going mad with patterns now. Oh, I'm sorry, who thought that was a good idea with football fans that are usually drunk when at games? They're the gonna... People's Republic of Nike, James. You don't get a choice. They throw money at you and in return, you, they're basically dictators, is what happens. Uh, Kate is in Gibraltar. Hello, Kate. Hello. Kate's just booked her flights because Kate's coming to Jordan next year. Yeah, I'm really excited. How exciting. Yeah, so it's been, it's been a busy week, actually. I've been... I've booked Jordan. I've been doing all sorts of other things, including dodging riots in my town, which is nice. 
Yeah, they've been. Uh, why are they rioting in Spain? Is there like a lack of ham or? No, it's to do with the smuggling in La Linea. Um, okay. Couple of, a couple of people were. I don't know the exact story. It hasn't come out yet, but essentially, a couple of people were out at sea, probably refueling a drug boat, and they got into difficulties. Their boat broke or something, and anyway, they ended up dead. The police wouldn't let anybody go out to get them. In they wouldn't let people swim out to them because it was really uh, windy. And so everybody blames the police for their deaths and has rioted and burned dustbins and palm trees and derelict buildings and smashed up bus stops. So I've been dodging that all week. Sounds like where I live, to be honest. (laughs) Sounds like Collier's Wood when they run out of wine. (laughs) (laughs) And frou-frou bars. Horrendous. So, but very excited about Jordan. Yeah, very excited. Indeed. Erin is also coming to Jordan. Yay! 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 Yes, I am. I am coming to Jordan. I've, I've had an interesting week because a French bulldog has moved in next door. Do you know what a French bulldog does? Make a lot of noise? Well, basically, it does saliva. Oh, <laughs> It does nothing but saliva. I mean, it's, it's very is sweet. That, is it's, that where the French bit comes from? Pardon? Is that where the French bit comes from? Mate, even I've. Should we just move on? Erin, <laughs> <laughs> my, my brain, my brain sort of intervened then and went, "No, be quiet." <laughs> <laughs> stop dogging, Stop dogging. it up. <clears throat> right, I think Lockie's <laughs> popping in at some point, isn't he? Uh, anyway, it's now been what twenty minutes, and we haven't yet told people what we're doing tonight. We're debating <laughs> the greatest speech in history, uh, which is going to be awesome. Anyone tries to steal mine because I claimed it four weeks ago, I will kill you and then edit you out. So, because <laughs> uh, I am omnipotent. I don't even know where to start. Um, I'm not going to start with Dorman because Dorman's admitted he's slightly unfair. Don't worry, Dorman, I've got to finish mine as well. Uh, right, okay. <sighs> Beth's got a mouthful of Skittles. Let's not go there. <laughs> That's where you go when she's eating. <laughs> you amateur. <laughs> I'll just sit here. <laughs> you can keep cracking on. I'll just sit here eating my sweets. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Do you know what? Let's let's get Princess out of the way at the beginning because then it won't matter when he has to turn into a pumpkin again and go off because he has a real job and a life. Go on. No, it must be strange for somebody. Um, I'm going to go to far more modern history, uh, away from my normal Napoleonic uh, tonight, but firmly in the military camp. One knows it's not going to win because Churchill and Martin Luther King are coming up, so why bother, uh, frankly? Uh, but let's give it a go anyway. This is a slightly more controversial one. We're going to the 19th of March 2003, so well within living memory for most of us, apart from the, the baby face in the room. Um, it's, it's the eve of battle, always a motivational moment. Uh, it makes and breaks uh, many moments on the path, passage of history. This is unusual that this speech was unplanned, but also recorded by a journalist. It is the 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment, on the eve of crossing the border onto Optelic 1, a.k.a. Um, the invasion of Iraq. It was led by Lieutenant Colonel Tim Collins, who just recently taken over as the commanding officer of the battalion. He's got a history of uh, recently serving at that time with the Special Air Service. 
and was making quite an impression upon the battalion as a, a man of mystery and many talents. It obviously worth putting into context the, the men he's with. Uh, they are of uh, the Royal Irish Regiment. So they are mostly men from Northern Ireland and uh, of both sides of the religion, but it's very much in the forefront of this speech and uh, where they're going in mind uh, into Iraq and the history of that country, I think that makes it so pertinent uh, within modern history uh, of why I've chosen this one. And I'm going to try to read out some of this, uh, especially trying to avoid breaking into a Northern Irish accent, which is going to be slightly difficult normally because it works very well. Uh, for his best version, um, it was actually dramatised by Sir Kenneth Branagh, who put on a very, very thick Northern Irish accent. Um, but I'll give it my best go. Uh, I think it's worth bearing the context as ever with this one, and uh, I'll let it speak for itself, I think. We go to liberate, not to conquer. We will not fly our flags in their country. We are entering Iraq to a free a people, and the only flag which will be flown in their ancient land is their own. Show respect for them. There are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. Wipe them out if that is what they choose. But if you are ferocious in battle, be magnanimous in victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood, and of the birthplace of Abraham. Tread lightly there. You will see things that no man could pay to see, and you'll have a long way to go to find more. A decent, generous, upright people than the Iraqis. You will be embarrassed by the hospitality, even though they have nothing to give. Do not treat them as refugees in their own country. Their children will be poor, and in years to come, they will know that the light of liberation in their lives was brought to them by you. If there are casualties of war, then remember that when they woke up and got dressed in the morning, they did not plan to die. Allow them death in dignity. Bury them properly and mark their graves. It is my foremost intention to bring every single one of you out of there alive. But there may be people among us who will not stay. We will put them in their sleeping bags and send them back. There will be no time for sorrow. The enemy should be in no doubt that we are his nemesis and that we are bringing about his rightful destruction. There are many regional commanders who have stains on their souls and they're stoking the fires of hell for Saddam. He and his forces will be destroyed by his coalition for what they have done. As they die, they will know their deeds have been brought to them to this place. Show them no pity. It is a big step to take another human life. It is not to be done lightly. I know of men who have taken a life needlessly in other conflicts, and I can assure you they live with the mark of Cain upon them. If someone surrenders to you, then remember that they have that right in international law and assure them that one day they will go home to their family. The ones that wish to fight, we aim to please. If you harm the regiment or its history, but over enthusiasm or killing or in cowardice, know it is your family who will suffer. You will be shunned unless your conduct is of the highest, for your deeds will follow them down through history. 
we will bring shame upon neither our uniform or our nation. And then briefly on Saddam's chemical and biological weapons. It is not a question of if, it is a question of when. We will know he has already devolved the decision to lower commanders and that he means he has already taken the decision himself. If we survive the first strike, we will survive the attack. As for ourselves, let's bring everyone home and leave Iraq a better place for us having been there. Our business now is north. Given the benefit of hindsight, I think it's one of the most poignant speeches that could be for the eve of battle. Uh, there were dramas set upon it when he mentions the mark of Cain. And from a history point of view, I think it's really interesting that he mentions Iraq's history. And as any soldier, serving soldier or veteran, showing the respect for the dead, the prisoners of war, and even a nod to laws of armed conflict uh, is both interesting and important. It's one for modern uh, history, uh, I will admit, but I think it's an incredibly important one when you frame it within the context of the Iraq war and the controversy therein. So that's my pitch for the eve of battle speech, Peach by Tim Collins. Well done. A very good start. Uh, very well prepared as well, Princess. Um, Holmes. Yeah, and Marcus, you finished off by saying it was important, but why, why was it important? It was taken up. Uh, there was a journalist there. I think the mail. Well, I think we'll come to that in a minute. But you said in the context of the overall Iraq war, it was important. So why was it important? It was quickly um, publicised and televised, but also it yeah, was... We'll come, to, we'll come to that bit in a minute, but why, why was it important in the context well, he, of the Iraq war? It was actually very unusual for a commander to actually give a speech. Well, uh, that, was my, that was my second question. It was, did any other regimental commander... Because my, my problem with this is that I have a feeling he knew journalists were going to be there and journalists were going to be filming it. And so he thought he would come up with a sort of cross between Shakespeare, Elizabeth, sorry, Churchill, Elizabeth I, and that's how he wanted to be recorded. I mean, some of it sounds vaguely poetic. It sounds a bit like we've heard it before, but I mean, even I thought your excerpts dragged on a little bit. I don't know if I'm being too harsh here, but I think, you know, after he left the army, he did have a, you know, he has made several appearances on television it's slightly odd that no one else did this yet we all still hear about this now and it sounded good but you know there's no conduct to how events panned out after the invasion started no i just think it's that kind of hindsight when we talk about obviously not having the weapons and they're mentioned the uh the investigations that are still ongoing onto the conduct of soldiers both during the invasion and afterwards in the capture and it kind of that whole benefit of hindsight um and also it being unusual i don't it was definitely unplanned because uh, there's a very good biography of his second um the regimental sergeant major doug Beatty, mc um, I, mean, I have to, i've got to be careful because i know he's sued people for libel but are you telling me he made that all up on the spot? Apparently. Yeah. I know, it's got a huge Shakespearean ethos to it, um, but apparently it was off the cuff. Uh, the men were looking quite scared, frankly, and he wanted to bring them uh, together. So I believe from the only source that I've got, which is the uh, autobiography of the regimental sergeant major, it was unplanned. And uh, at the end of a briefing, he stood up and stepped forward and did that. But I, it's only I believe that it could well be otherwise, but that's what I've led to believe. Merrin, professional yeah. speechwriter. Well, yeah, it, yeah it, it was extemporaneous. It was 
pretty much off the cuff. There were some phrases that he had used recently, but he strung it all together and that's why it worked and that's why it was important at the time because the men in front of him knew they weren't necessarily hearing something that had been scripted or prepared for them. They got their man in front of them, really motivating them with words that they could remember, with uh, matching phrases, with patterns that, that, that resonated that they could repeat later on. And it just... It just shifted the goalposts in their minds for why, why they were there and what they were doing. Judge Kit, what do you say? Um, yeah, I mean, I have had a quick look into this. I think there was one journalist there. There is no recording of this film or, or, or speech. Um, the one thing I would say is you brought in hindsight, which is probably not what you want to do when you talk about Saddam having chemical weapons. Yeah, no, I think I think we should. Yeah, he, they were told that he, they expected it, uh, and that's why it's interesting it's mentioned. Uh, just within the wider context, you know, there were no chemical weapons, but the men were expecting to step into Iraq and be gassed possibly to death. It's bloody scary. Yeah, I mean, chemical weapons aren't, aren't pleasant, uh, certainly. Um, uh, I, in terms of his speech, I haven't really got any, any comments. I mean, um, the one thing I would say is it sort of got a lot of biblical res resonance to it, very much so. Was was a religion a motivating factor for the, this particular regiment? Is that a strong part of their culture? Hugely. Um, when you think it's the Royal Irish Regiment, they they have a quite an equal split, but it's Protestant and Catholics in there, and very strongly with uh, very strong Irish culture. And uh, it, yeah, I think by mentioning the Mark of Cain was on purpose that it would be relevant to them. Uh, and elements like Merrin mentioned that they'd be able to remember um, from, you know, Sunday school, from Bible studies. Yeah, it's, it's on purpose. You would not necessarily get that in some other regiments, which I quite find interesting. Great. Thank you very much. An interesting start, because I think there's a lot of, like you said, you've already named two that we know are going to come up. So I am interested to see who everybody else has got uh, on this. Let's find out who's got. Oh, let's do a girl next. Let's go to someone who is 100% always ready because she is. She is. It's not the girl, it's what you think I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to Beth because Beth is so overcompetitive that she's probably rehearsed this in front of the mirror 42 times already. I haven't rehearsed it, but I have had it up my sleeve for weeks. And has told everybody she's going to win. Uh, it's all about confidence. Like, if I tell people I'm going to win and I believe I'm going to win, I am going to win. Okay, you have completely crawled up the backside of one of the judges with this. Go for it. Yes, I absolutely have. Um, so definitely staying firmly in my First World War lane with, with my choice for this evening. Um, my choice of speech certainly won't be the most well-known or the most quotable, but it holds a significance that continues to be felt over 90 years after it was spoken. The First World War was a conflict unlike anything else that had been seen before. The rapid expansions of the armies of the world, the intensity of mechanised warfare and the longevity of the conflict resulted in truly incomprehensible numbers being killed. And the people who were killed were, for the most part, not career soldiers. They had chosen to be part of their country's military. They hadn't been chosen. They hadn't chosen to be part of their country's military for their career, but had found themselves in a bubble which led to mass recruitment and mass participation in war. This meant the way that military burials had been conducted in previous conflicts, which was usually mass graves for hygiene and sanitary purposes, would not suffice anymore. 
commemoration of those who were buried and identified led to what those of us who were on the First World War battlefield regularly will immediately recognise as cemeteries with rows and rows of white headstones, striking features across the countryside. But what about those whose remains were never recovered, those who have never been found? These kind of questions led to the creation of memorials for the missing around the world. Famous examples being the Tietval Memorial on the Somme in France and the Hellas Memorial at Gallipoli. And it is at one of the inauguration of one of those memorials that I am advocating that the greatest speech in history was spoken. The speech I am referring to is the one given by Field Marshal Herbert Plumer on the 24th of July 1927 at the inauguration ceremony of the Menningate Memorial to the Missing in Ypres, Belgium. A more, I can't get my words out today. A memorial which commemorates over 54,000 British and Commonwealth troops who were killed fighting in the Ypres salient and have no known grave. Plumer had spent most of his First World War career as a general in Belgium, quite successfully. So the area was well known to him and he was given the opportunity to speak at the inauguration of the Menin Gate. Um, a good friend of good friend and colleague of his, Charles Harrington, who was present at this occasion, wrote in his own book about Plumer that he entitled Plumer of Messine. He described a long procession of relatives winding their way through the Grand Place, the Market Square or the Grottmarkt, whichever one you wish to call it. They were making their way to the newly built brand spanking new Menningate Memorial to take their places on the eastern side of the gate. Flagpoles on the newly rebuilt buildings of the formerly destroyed city were hung with black flags. Following on from the town hall, the official dignitaries included Albert, King of the Belgians, Plumer and General Foch as well. Hundreds of local inhabitants, veterans of the war and relatives of the fallen and fallen British and Commonwealth troops were gathered in, the, in Ypres and along the route to the Menin Gate. There was seating for 160 official guests and military representatives. There were contingents from the British and Belgian armies together with military bands. Veterans of the Great War wearing civilian clothing and carrying wreaths were gathered on the pavement underneath the memorial. Crowds were stood on the ramparts either side of the memorial and along the road opposite the memorial on the eastern side of the moat. Several hundred veterans and relatives were crowded into the streets. Individuals were in every open window of the newly built houses overlooking the memorial. Photographers stood on walls or ladders to get a good vantage point. Loudspeakers were set up to enable everyone to hear the ceremony. Millions were also listening in to the ceremony, which was being broadcast on the wireless in Britain. Recalling the speech given by Lord Plumer as he officially unveiled the memorial, Harrington, his friend I mentioned, commented on Plumer's natural ability for public speaking. Harrington considered that Plumer's speech at the Menin Gate was perhaps his greatest effort and that it must have been a supreme moment in his life. Plumer was standing in a place well known to him and the hundreds of thousands of British and Commonwealth troops who were based through the Ypres salient in the First World War. Harrington wrote, I am sure he was thinking, as we all were, of all those brigades and battalion headquarters which he used to visit living in burrows under those ramparts, of the casualties incurred nightly by the endless stream of transported men, their horses and mules, on their nightmare journeys through that Menin Gate, the star shells, the crackling rifle fire, 
shell bursts, plunging horse and dogged infantrymen. Shortly, I will be getting to the end of my presentation where I will quote the part of the speech that I think is truly the contender, the only contender for the greatest speech in history. It isn't the greatest speech in history because it encouraged a nation to continue fighting. It isn't the greatest speech in history because it brought together the civil rights movement. No, it is the greatest speech in history for a very different reason. In France and Belgium alone, there are almost 300 and 315,000 men named on memorials to the missing. That's 315,000 men whose location is completely unknown. That's 315,000 families that would never have the opportunity to lay flowers on their sons, husbands and brothers' graves. And that number doesn't even take into account the hundreds of thousands who are mentioned on other memorials around the world. And being commemorated on a memorial would not have been something uncommon. Every family, every person after the First World War would have known someone who had a loved one commemorated in this way. An example of this is the town where I live, where of the 333 young men killed during the First World War, 115 of them are commemorated on memorials. These memorials will continue to be a vocal point of remembrance, particularly the Men in Gate, where the last post ceremony has been conducted every day at 8pm, bar the four years of German occupation during the Second World War, thus ensuring the men listed on these memorials will be remembered for years to come. To me, the most moving part of Lord Plumer's speech, and I am finally getting to it, the best part, the part which deserves the title of greatest speech in history, was his encouraging and comforting words to the parents and relatives at the ceremony of the missing soldiers of the Ypres battlefields. Facing the Ypres salient, his words were, one of the most tragic features of the Great War was the number of casualties reported as missing believed killed. To their relatives, there must have been added to their grief a tinge of bitterness and a feeling that everything possible had not been done to recover their loved one's bodies and give them reverent burial. That feeling no longer exists. It ceased to exist when the conditions under which the fighting was being carried out were truly realised. But when peace came and the last ray of hope had been extinguished, the void seemed deeper and the outlook more forlorn for those who had no grave to visit, no place where they could lay tokens of loving remembrance. It was resolved that here at Ypres, where so many of the missing are known to have fallen, there should be erected a memorial worthy of them, which should give expression to the nation's gratitude for their sacrifice and its sympathy with those who mourn them. A memorial has been erected which, in its simple grandeur, fulfills this object. And now it can be said of each one of those in, of each one of those in whose honour we are assembled here today, he is not missing, he is here. Well done, Beth. Oh, a little bit of applause from around the room. I do love that speech and I do love granddaddy. I want him to be my granddad. I love it's, him. it's just so brilliant, you know. Oh. Yeah. Holmes, she was basically kissing your ass with this one. <laughs> yeah, and it worked. I mean, I think that's probably it for the evening now, is it? Probably all go home. Yes. Never hear the end of it. I mean, it, it's 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 difficult for me to find fault with it to be honest i mean i think you know um 
without getting too overly simplistic, he was one of the good generals anyway, wasn't he? He was regarded as, you know, having consideration to the soldiers under his command. Um, and I think as well, there was no real agenda when he was doing this. He, it was all health, heartfelt, and he meant it. He wasn't doing it for political or any other reasons. And I think um, it's almost perfect for the ceremony that he was um, involved in. Um, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any other speech so you know when Tietmal was open did anyone say anything there I, I'm not aware of anything but uh well the Meningate comes first by a good yeah. few years this was the first time yeah so, so the, uh, I think Tietmal was 1932 so by that point as well they were into the the swing of it I suppose opening and inaugurating memorials um but yeah Meningate was the first one and there's just I, I, I don't I, I suppose because um, the Meningate doesn't include all the casualties from ETH, does it? There's 25,000 no. or so on the Time Cop well, Memorial. So, so. so there's 54,000. Yeah, there's 54,000 on the Meningate. And it, it's the cut, there is a cutoff date. Um, so it's between the 4th of August 1914 and the 15th of August 1917. But it doesn't include any New Zealanders, no Newfoundlanders. Um, and the Australians that are on there and Canadians are commemorated all the way through to 1918. Um, then you've got 35,000 at Tynecott, which is also includes the New Zealanders. And then the ones from after middle of August 17 to the end of the war. So just for those two memorials, you've got nearly 90,000 names to be commemorated. And um, wish, wish to be fair, he wasn't involved in any of those decisions, but I would, was it, was something similar done when the, Time Memorial was inaugurated. I don't think so. Don't I think, think so. the decision not to, uh, it's a space consideration, but also the Dominions chose where they wanted to be and they wanted their own. Mm. Yeah. I mean, do we, is there any feedback, you know, from the relatives who were there at the ceremony? Do we know of anything? Of what, what was well, if you had read my article, Holmes, in the first salient points, there's an <laughs> interview with a semi-disabled old mum. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, go on. I mean, obviously I've read it, but I've forgotten. I've been very busy <laughs> reading about speeches and stuff. One journalist watched how now elderly mothers gazing in wonderment at the colossal monument in front of them. A disabled woman was leaning on a wall gasping for breath in no small amount of pain, but she was not upset. The sheer effort she had expended to get to this point was inconceivable, but she was almost ecstatic. What won't a mother's love do, she said to him. Another said, I felt I wanted to kiss my son's name when I saw it. I feel so happy to have seen that name. He was killed in 1914, 13 years ago, and ever since I have wanted to tread where he trod, I am happy. There we go. Good stuff. Just, there's no political motivation. There's no, um, you know, on the cusp of a great moment, like some of our speeches will be. It is just pure and utter emotion I argue that um if there is no political motivation for saying the words then it can't be the greatest speech ever written um but I will get to that later with my argument Kit put some context on this because Holmes isn't the one she has to sell this to because he's obsessed with this shit uh, oh. is this the greatest speech ever written I'm going to be honest uh, so I had heard of the men in gate I had no idea what it was um, and I had absolutely no context for this whatsoever. I have never heard of of, of some some pl plumber. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with the guy at all because um, I'm not a first world war historian. I've just not heard of him. Um, 
I was looking at this. My, my one question is, uh, so this is 1927 that this inauguration happens. 50, 54,896 people, which is a huge number. Um, it is seven years after the burial of the unknown soldier, the tomb of the unknown soldier in, in uh, Westminster Abbey. So could you give me some context as to why this particular memorial is so important? I think because for, for the British, you know, Ypres particularly is so important. It is, uh, comparatively, you could say it's like the Ypres to the British is what Verdun is to the French. It's a very emotive place. You know, Churchill wanted to keep it a ruin after the First World War um, because it meant so much to Britain. You know, a lot of casualties killed in the First World War, any casualties inflicted, a lot of them came in the Ypres salient, which is, if you look at it on a map, an absolutely tiny section of... Um, um, I think this memorial, because it was the first one, is, it, like anything with any firsts, it is always extremely important. And, yeah, the Unknown Warrior was important as well, and it's that concept of this young, this person, this man could be anyone, this could be your brother, it could be your husband, what have you. But on the memorials, there is actually a place for them. There is a place where they are actually commemorated. That is then, as a family member, your own space. That when makes sense. The one, the one sort of argument I would make uh, and is that this is very much for the, the families of these of, of the fallen, which is incredibly important. But in the context of general history, th is this a speech that would stand up and be able to inspire other nations, other countries at other times, like so many other great speeches? Well, with the, with the Men in Gate, it's not just British soldiers. You know, you've got soldiers on there from across the Commonwealth. You've got Australians, you've got Canadians, you've got Indians, you've got South Africans. Yes, the New Zealanders and so on are, are in other places, but this isn't a speech for Britain. It's a, it's a speech for Britain and its Commonwealth, which at the time was a significant proportion of the world. Um, so I would say, yeah, it is a speech for more than just Britain. It is a speech for multiple people. Well, I think you said it very eloquently, and I and thank you for bringing this piece of history, which I, like I say, I wasn't familiar with to my attention. Thank you. Excellent. Right. Okay. Lockie's joined us. You're all right, Lockie. Hi. Sorry, I'm late. How's it going? Yeah, we're all right. Uh, although there seemed someone in this room is not all right. Dorma, what the fuck are you doing? And why is a tragedy and acting in Dublin? Have you I dropped have, your dessert on the floor? I had one slice of lemon meringue pie from my birthday leftover, and I was saving the meringue bit for last, and I knocked it off the plate with a spoon like a complete moron, and now the carpet is sticky, and I'm sad. <laughs> and in the context of Beth's thing, it seems petty, but I'm still <laughs> upset. <laughs> I just, he completely stole your thunder while you were talking there, Beth, because the whole room was fixated. On well, how, how bloody dead like the like woman. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, Dorman, the, the meringue's not missing; it's there, you know. So, <laughs> use your tiny oh. cup. Use your tiny cup. <laughs> the tiny cup has a use. But he's, what he's saying, what he's saying, is that it's now hairy and he can't eat it. Charlie, will you post him some meringue? I will post some meringue. <laughs> you will get some professionally baking goddess meringue. The Aww. best food that's coming to this house out of this podcast other than those fucking hell nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Goose said, bring on the hell nuts. So I brought them. Right. <clears throat> Where should we go next? Let's go to... Now we've seen how it works. Let's go to Josh. Josh, what is the greatest speech in history? 
Uh, heaven help us. All right. <clears throat> well, my candidate is is probably not terribly well known, and that probably means I'm going to lose. <laughs> it's my brand. At least it's realistic. <laughs> in, in my in my efforts to find somebody that absolutely nobody would would find, I have probably just shot myself in the head because well, <laughs> nobody cares. But anyway, um, I mean, if in, if in doubt, just try an accent. That's, about, that's what Clive does pretty much every week. Okay, well that that will be interesting because I would have to attempt a Spanish one. So just do what Clive does and make him Cockney every week. Okay, right. That's a bad idea too with me, but whatever. Thanks for the input, guys. <laughs> I'll, I'll remember this for the next time. Um, so uh, I feel that this is certainly one of the greatest speeches ever written, not because of the words or how they're necessarily presented, but, but of what they say. Uh, the works of a controversial Dominican friar named uh, Bartolome de las Casas during the 1530s had reached the ear of the King of Spain. And so forceful was his arguments, like those contained in his book with the catchy title, A Brief Account of the Destruction of the Indies, that in 1550, the King convened a debate at Valladolid to discuss whether or not it was legal to continue the conquest of the Americas. Until this matter was settled, no more conquest would be royally sanctioned from Madrid. On the one side, you had our man Las Casas, who was the leader of, or like one of the leading lights, we'll say, of one of the, of the Christian humanist movement that had grown out of the University of Salamanca. And on the other side, advocating the right of conquest was a secular humanist scholar who was a student of Aristotle named Juan Quinales de Supervede. To understand this speech, which is, which, and this bit, bit I'm giving you here is, is a summary of a much larger oration because Las Casas read out verbatim two massive addresses, one in Spanish and one in Latin during the debates. So you should bear in mind that first, if you were a secular humanist in the 16th century, you tended to live and die by what Aristotle said about stuff, which was in this case that barbarians were devoid of reason and were natural slaves of those who did have reason. Cassas had originally been involved in the conquest of Americas by comparison, and after deciding that it was immoral, spent a few decades trying to stop it and get better treatment for the Indians, all of which culminated in the Valladolid debates. And this is the crux of Las Casas' um, rebuttal of Sepulveda's um, basic point that we're, it's okay to conquer the Americas because they're all barbarians and we have reason and we can force Christianity on them with the sword. And I quote, now if we shall have shown that among our Indians in the Western and Southern shores, granting that we call them barbarians and that they are barbarians, there are important kingdoms large numbers of people who live settled lives in a society, great cities, kings, judges, and laws, persons who engage in commerce, buying, selling, lending, and other contracts of, law, of the law of nations. Will it not stand proved that the Reverend Dr. Sepulveda has spoken wrongly 
and viciously against people like these, either out of malice or ignorance of Aristotle's teaching, and therefore has falsely and perhaps irreparably slandered them before the entire world. From the fact that the Indians are barbarians, it does not necessarily follow that they are incapable of government and have to be ruled by others, except to be taught the Catholic faith and to be admitted to the holy sacraments. They are not ignorant, inhuman, or bestial. Rather, long before they heard the word Spaniard, they had properly organized states, wisely ordered by excellent laws, religion, and custom. They cultivated friendship and bound together in common fellowship, lived in popular cities in which they wisely administered their affairs of both peace and war jointly and equitably. Truly, governed by laws that at many points surpass ours and could have won the admiration of the sages of Athens. Next, I call the Spaniards who plunder that unhappy people torturers. For God's sake and man's faith in him, is this the way to impose the yoke of Christ? Is this the way to remove wild barbarism from the minds of barbarians? Is it not rather to act like thieves, cutthroats, and cruel plunderers, and to drive the gentlest people headlong into despair. The Indian race is not that barbaric, nor are they dull-witted or stupid, but they are easy to teach and very talented in learning all the liberal arts. The Indians are our brothers in Christ. Uh, they are our brothers, and Christ has given his life for them. Why, then, do we persecute them with such inhuman savagery when they do not deserve such treatment? The past, because it cannot be undone, must be attributed to our weaknesses, provided that what has been taken unjustly is restored. Finally, let all apparatus of war, which are better suited to Muslims and Christians, be done away with. All the races of the world are men, and, all, and of all men and of each individual there is but one definition, and this is that they are rational, all have understanding and free will of choice, as all are made in the image and likeness of God. Thus, the entire human race is one. All men are alike with respect to their creation and the things of nature, and none is born already taught. This excerpt forms maybe less than 1% of the actual address. But in the chamber of history, the words spoken in Valladolid echo loudly into the debates about human rights and the plight of war-torn populations today. It is remarkable to me that um, this was the first time a colonial power tried to ask hard questions about the righteousness of their cause. Elsewhere in Las Casas' defense of the Indians, he asks the Spanish empire treat the indigenous people of America with the respect that they would give to Christians. And that can and that conversion through war was immoral. This was something that was almost anathema since Constantine declared in this sign conquer. Jesus, Las Casas said, had preached peace. Is it the greatest speech ever written? Well, that's impossible to say. But it started a conversation, a debate that forms the bedrock of many similar conversations still go on today. This was the 16th century. The Inquisition was at the height of its powers. War in the name of God was entirely accepted. 
even Las Casas' own language is still discriminatory towards other people in the world. But yet with all this contradiction, here is a man with firsthand experience of the horrors of the plight suffered by the Americans, asking the king and the church who were responsible for the, in quotes, destruction of the Indies to favorably compare the religion and laws of people like the Aztecs with their own and say they were wrong and say they are wrong and that all the world is human. Well done, Josh. And I, do you know what? I think you've made a brilliant point, which I absolutely 100% agree with. Um, and we'll ask Mary for her input because she's just bar flying today. That if it does, I think that an uh, essential component of trying to find the greatest speech ever given is that it has to have fucking cost you something to give it. It has to, you have to have said something that, I mean, it's Pluma getting up and talking to people who all agreed with him. Great. But this guy got up and shat on the establishment and challenged the view that everybody else held and said something that could have cost him everything. Merrin, do you agree? Sort of. The three three principal elements of, of pure, great speech are ethos, pathos, logos. You have to make a physical and emotional connection with your audience. And to do that, sometimes the best way to do it is not to empathise with them, but to challenge them because you can predict that their response is going to be catalytic. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, I agree with the sentiments entirely. I mean, if that's only a small part of the overall speech, it did drag on a bit. I mean, when you started to read out the actual quote bit, the uh, cause the hairs on the back of my neck to uh, relax and retreat inwards a little bit. So I wasn't <laughs> particularly moved by it, although the sentiments are great. In, in terms of the actual legacy from it, they had the, the council of the meeting at Valladolid, or however, however we're pronouncing it. Did it, did it actually change how the Spanish treated South Americans? Well, at the end of the debate, at the end of the debate, both sides said they won. And it cannot be argued with any reasonable um, sort of integrity that this stopped the conquest of the Americas, because it didn't. However, things did slow down remarkably fast after a particular point in the late 16th century. And what it, but what it did do was that it essentially broke the, what was called the encomienda system, which was essentially the plantation, plantation system that the Spanish had been working on, um, uh, which allowed them basically to use the Indians as slaves um, legally. Uh, and to go out and find them and take them and put them into these plantations and stuff like that. This was this was scored by Las Casas as a major victory because he was then able, due to due to the political momentum he gained through the Valladolid debates, to actually effectively cause change in the way that the American uh, colonies were administered. Okay, and then is he is he relatively well known? Obviously, I'd never heard of him, but that, that says more about me than anything else. But um, is he well known in or remembered in Spain today? Uh, in Spain, uh, he's—I wouldn't say he was massively well known. He's well known among scholars and things like that. He's like I say, he's a country. It, it's not necessarily that he, as a person, is is the important part of this because he is a very controversial man. Because as I said, he was discriminatory in his own way. In order to free the Indians, he had to advocate the, the enslavement of Africans, 
which later in his life he said was a massive mistake. And for this reason, he is a man is controversial. But as, as I said in the address, the actual message of what he's saying is incredibly important in terms of the discussion of human rights going down through the centuries. And a lot of the stuff he talks about in the debates actually continue to be talked about in private, in public today. Literally, I'm talking here. Um, he is relatively well known in the span in like the Spanish, Spanish sort of colonies, you'll say in America, ex-Spanish colonies. But again, he's a 16th century monk. Nobody knows about the Valladolid debates. If you know about the Spanish conquest, you know about the Spanish conquest, and you don't really know that somebody said, hang on a second, are we doing the right thing here? Yeah, I think we might deduct a couple of marks for replacing um, South American slaves with African slaves. We're being well, see, entirely honest nothing, here. But... Well, uh, well, you see, that's nothing to do with the debates. That's to do with the political ramifications that came afterwards. That's nothing to do with the actual speech. Yeah. True, but I think <laughs> I, I think legacy has got to be part of the analysis. For well, you see, I think the I legacy think. of this speech, because he doesn't talk about Africans in the Valladolid debates, he talks about don't enslave the Indians, don't make war in the name of God. These are very moral questions, very theological questions. And a lot of them were unable to be answered at the time. And obviously they went, he went down a road that he later bitterly regretted. But the it's point interesting is, as well, does it take away from the words, the fact that other yeah. people follow them? It is interesting. Let, let's see what Kit thinks. Yeah, I think my big problem with it is that um, is that it didn't have an impact in terms of actually stopping the slave trade, which is kind of his point. Um, the one thing as well is, if people aren't familiar with this area, is is the it's it's the starting point really of anti-Hispanic propaganda by their rival countries. Um, you know, people like Great Britain, for example, have just been reading up on the subject. Um, so it's not all a positive legacy. This this particular speech. No, it's not. And it's fascinating to actually bring that up. He was so effective at criticizing the King of Spain and the conquest that Protestant nations grabbed hold of the account of the destruction of the Indies, spread it around, and, and it forms the nucleus of the black legend, which is essentially that, you know, everything bad you've ever heard about the Spanish is, in t is, is called the black legend. And it forms a great part of that. And again, is that necessarily a bad thing? Because let's face it, the conquest of the Americas by the Spanish was a really, really shady thing. And the fact that it's thought of as a bad thing at all is in large part due to the, the, the vilification of every Spaniard involved in it by the Protestant powers and indeed people like Las Casas. And he basically opened a window on a global scale then, you could say to what was going on in the Americas. Um, I, I think you might be overselling that, that, that single well, I mean, speech in terms of I mean, the impact. You, you, have to, you have to remember that if it got to the other countries, then it spreads across the world. Well, I, I think using your words against you in terms of propaganda is a sort of a common tactic. Um, in terms of the actual speech itself, you said that was, that was just a short excerpt. Uh, did he have other major arguments or was it solely around the, the morality, the Christian morality? Uh, well, there is the entire 
the entire address is, is... I mean, you don't have to do the entire address. I'm just wondering as well, if as poignant as that fraction of the speech is, the fact that it was absorbed into another three days of talking, yeah. would that detract from the... I think, it's, I think it's a very... Yeah, I think it's a very important speech. I think it is one of the greatest speeches, not only because it would have taken a ridiculously long time to actually say it all, but because of the importance of the words it contained. And can I just say well done as well for picking one that wasn't made in English <laughs> for this debate? Because uh, we are completely overflowed and uh, <laughs> the only one. Uh, so yeah. well done for that. But um, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's not an easy subject. I don't really expect it to be accepted as, as, a, as the greatest speech, but I, I wanted to include it in the conversation because it is yeah. very important. I think the same as Marx's. I think if you haven't got one of the front runners who got grabbed within five seconds I know because I grabbed one of them and Zach grabbed the other because he's a mercenary uh then I think it's important that if you're not looking at it from the point of fact as I've guaranteed that I've got one that's going to be a front runner then you should talk about something that moves you and I think it's good that we're getting that and it's good that we're getting that from across the globe as well what is not good is the fact that my glass is empty so we're going to pause <laughs> the drink and then we're going to come back but great debut Josh well done thank you Right, we've gone off to get drinks. Kit is trying to get Merrin to dress up as Princess Leia, and I think it's actually working. Uh, <laughs> and we've been really quite serious and intellectual so far in this, but while we were on pause, it was all about the knob jokes, um, which is <laughs> more uh, along our usual themes. Right, where should we go next? I want to go to... Let's go to Dorman. We've not heard Dorman talk in ages. Go on, my little paddy buddy, go for it. Look at you. Um, Andy, Andy. This won't be long. Uh, it, it, like, <laughs> sure, because it's incredibly well prepared. But I think um, it's it's got a chance. It's also not in English, so bonus points. Um, and it's not Oswego, which loses marks. So, <laughs> greatest speech honestly is a little bit too vague. I mean, I would argue that George Bush is the greatest orator of our time. If humor is your measure of greatness, so I think if you don't look at it empirically impact is probably one of the best measures of a speech's greatness and given that the greatest speech in history has to be that given by urban ii which sparked the crusades as you have 900 years of legacy you know how is this even a contest so a little bit of context in 1071 um, at the battle of manzikert the byzantine army under romanos the fourth was shattered by the seljuk turks this marks the high point of the Byzantine Empire and the start of a Turkish resurgence in Anatolia. Eastern Christendom is firmly on the back foot and reinforcements are needed. Now, the reasons for launching the Crusades are myriad. Some put it down to a need to reestablish trade routes. Others believe it's to preserve Christendom as a whole and to curtail Turkish expansion. Others view it as a repercussion for Saracen piracy in the Mediterranean. Others simply view it as a new theatre of the Spanish Reconquista. Regardless of the cause, the event which is deemed to have started off the Crusades was this speech. He gives it in November 1095, arguably in two parts, the first to clergy, the second to sort of the laity. And there's no exact records of what he said, because this is the Middle Ages and people like to embellish what people say. There's five different transcripts and they're all fairly similar. And you can cherry pick your favorite lines from each. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's a couple of good quotes. Uh, God has conferred upon you above all nations, great glory in arms. Accordingly, undertake this journey for the remission of your sins with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. 
And there's one line that really sets the tone for the campaign by which all who die by the way, whether by land or by sea or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested. And that sets the tone for Christian Islamic relations for the next 200 years. The Crusades are a seminal event of the medieval era. I'm not going to go into the history of the first crusade. There's a history hack episode of that, which is really good. But when we looked at the events that take place in it, the sacking of Jerusalem is probably the most important event in East-West relations. This is Christianity's great counterpunch. And then subsequently, Islam's efforts to oust the entrenched Franks dominated history for hundreds of years afterwards. Figures like Reynaud de Chatillon are still vilified. Saladin and Baldwin IV glorified at the other end of the scale. The establishment of a Christian Levant as a result of this speech changes the dynamic in that region forever. And one looks at the, one looks at the violence that's happening in Jerusalem today, arguably one can trace it back to this speech in November. So the Crusades, probably one of the most important events in world history. This speech is the one that kicks it off. Need I say more? Uh, but what you have said is that great doesn't have to mean good, which I yeah. think is an interesting distinction to make in this debate. But someone who has recorded this first Crusades episode, which is about to air next week, I think, uh, is Kit, and who is very excited, I think, to rip you a new a-hole. <laughs> I am. Well, let's let's start with the fact that there is no fucking record of this speech. Um, that's kind of important. <laughs> Second, Foreman's like, he... what? That's not what Wikipedia said. <laughs> The one thing we do know about this particular speech um, is that a better one was almost immediately given by Adamar of Lepuy, who everyone went, yeah, you're the real leader here. So we know that someone upstaged him within five fucking minutes. Um, but let's go back to how the Crusades started, because you're right, Battle of Manzikert and uh, Alexius, uh, the emperor of uh, Byzantium, he, he wants help. He asks for mercenaries from Christendom to come and kick the Turks out of Anatolia, and he gets a crusade to Jerusalem. This is the equivalent of saying, can you come around and fix a plug, and Nick Knowles and DIY SOS kicking down your door. This is overkill on a grand scale. Um, we also know that there are other figures in the crusade who were better orators. A good example being Peter the Hermit, who manages to, to convince a load of peasants who have no armour skills at all, no martial prowess, to go and march across Europe to fucking Turkey and get massacred. So... Pinning it on Urban, yes, he does instigate the Second Crusade, but in terms of the quality of speech, there is no evidence that he gave a good one. Right, but he has the papal authority, and therefore, without that, would one have any of the subsequent good oratory? Would it just matter, or is it just hot air? Well, the papal authority is really quite interesting, because this is the first time that papal authority is actually extended into martial prowess. True. Usually, this is actually the instigation of the idea that the Pope on earth, who at this time was considered fallible, uh, that papal infallibility comes in much, much later, um, could actually try and encourage people to go to war. So that's quite interesting, the fact that he uses this power. Um, but is it because he was a good speech giver, or was it just because he happened to be the Pope? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not like his oratory was, as I said, I think George Bush is fucking hilarious when he says a speech. <laughs> 
So, you know, <laughs> I can't I'm not arguing that it was harsh on a guy who's just dropped the last of his um, birthday meringue on the carpet. I, I am. I am. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, no further questions, Your Honor. I'll, I will let I will let Holmes be much kinder to him. No, no. I, I and now Holmes is in a right fucking grumpy mood. He's not going to be nice. <laughs> and also, yeah, I now know who, how the rest of you feel when, you know, you set up and someone's nicked your pitch because I had all those questions I was going to ask has just been asked by Kit. <laughs> Not really. I have no clue. I didn't really understand most of this. But, I, I mean, it's slightly bad if you're regarded as a worse orator than a bloke called Peter the Hermit. That's the main takeaway that I've got. From... Well, Peter the Hermit was a bit of a twat. I, I mean, oh, yeah, militarily speaking, twat. he did lead thousands of people to just get shot to pieces and die of thirst. Not exactly a great dude. Not just gone ahead anyway, had they not had the papal authority? I don't know that. That's just a genuine question. I would say no. Um, I'm happy to have Kit's input on that. But killing someone was very much a big no-no at that point, Christian or not. So having papal, like, okaying to do that was pretty important. Yeah, the, the papal authority thing is is kind of important because, like I say, this uh, this letter comes from Alexius asking for mercenary support, and the uh, the Franks have absolutely no reason to go and help the Byzantines. You know, the reason that they go over there is this concept of Christendom, which is given to them by the Pope. So it is papal authority. Um, in terms of, uh, of of attacking non-Christians, though, it is worth remembering that as they marched through Europe, they happily massacred the entire Jewish populations of several towns, put babies on spits and mm. danced through the, uh, through the streets. Um, so they weren't easy on people who weren't Christians because of this speech. Presumably, Kit or, or Dorman, the Pope was never going to say no anyway, was he? He was going to be... Well, this is the strange thing. So, so what you've got essentially is the Eastern Roman Empire. And at the time, the Byzantines considered themselves an extension of the Roman Empire. They wouldn't have thought of themselves as Byzantines. They would consider themselves Roman. Um, and we have a great source on this, Anna Komnena, who, who writes about her father's life uh, story. Um, so he thinks of himself as asking essentially the continuation of the Western Roman Empire for help. Um, it is that kind of sort of Christianity coming together uh, aspect to it. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting his mindset. Yeah, and then the the guys who go off and fight the crusade are essentially, I mean, if one considers a medieval knight, they are just child soldiers who have been bought, bred to kill from a young age, and they've got no one to kill in Europe. So it's a fantastic fucking excuse, <laughs> you know? Why not? It's no wonder it was so popular. Yeah, yeah, you don't necessarily and, need to be a good speech. You just need to light a spark. And uh, tune in for the uh, for the History Hack episode on this, because you'll find that several of the people who do go on crusade, the last thing they were attacking was the fucking Byzantines. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the cartoon is epic. Features Alina dead in a moat. Um, you'll find out why when you listen to it. That was actually her choice. Uh, right, okay. I really like that one. Well done, Dorman. Uh, well done again for getting us out of our Anglophone uh, mindset. Right, where should we go next? Let's go to let's see what let's see what Heather has to say. Not a lot, actually. <laughs> I'm doing uh, Queen Elizabeth's speech to the troops at Tilbury. Um, little background. Life was pretty darn rough for Elizabeth the first. Um, she went through more title changes in the beginning of her life than some people bathed, but her dad was the asshole Henry the Eighth, so I mean what do you expect? Um, her life and reign held a lot of intrigue, misplaced trust, backstabbing, threats, betrayal, 
and all of those com- culminated in the reason for her speech. Her dress to the troops at Tilbury before they prepared to take on the Spanish Armada happened on August 9th, 1588. What they didn't know was that the Spanish Armada, um, Armada had already been driven from the Straits of Dover in the Battle of Graveline 11 days prior. What was left of the Spanish Armada had rounded Scotland to return home. The troops at Tilbury were to remain at the ready in case of attack from the Duke of Parma, who had the Spanish army in Dunkirk just chilling out, waiting. But what I feel is the most important part of her speech is what follows. I know I have the body but of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. And I think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. Um, Basically, I think this speech is important because Queen Elizabeth sees herself very much as a woman, but also a king in general. Um, Her desire and willingness to take up arms to defend her kingdom from outside interference is very in line with what a king would do whereas a woman or a queen's role at the time was thought to be one of preserving the peace through other means. War was not a woman's place in this time, and it was thought that a woman would be very unfit to lead the military. Elizabeth came along and said, yeah, no, not happening. I'll I'll do this, and I'll do it my way. She had tried the diplomatic, peaceful way, way of approaching the problem, but soon realized that a firm hand, preferably attached to a weapon of war, was needed. She was ahead of her time and worked at changing the minds of not only the nobility, but of the people when it came to having a woman ruler. Well done. I like that you didn't try to over-egg that, given the um, fact that it's obviously not like Churchill, where you've got reams and reams of stuff to go on. Um, God, I dread to... Kit, you're in a slightly less... Um, Did it happen, is my first question. Well... I found more than a few people who say it did. It might not be exactly what she said, but it was along the lines of, of what they believe she said. And there were some people who um, took a look at writings that Elizabeth actually did that they actually could attribute just to her and say that much of the grammar and style of the writing was the same. But I mean... There's no definitive proof, but I'd like to think it is my... It's quite belief. interesting because because Elizabeth I, we know quite a lot about her. She, an awful lot is written about her, and particularly sort of Tudor England, still studied at schools in the UK. But she isn't known for her speeches. Could have happened. Maybe it didn't. But at the same time, I'd like to think it was real. I mean, she, she was a very good queen, and she really did like to re- rule more in line of a male monarch than a female monarch and kind of hope it is real. The the final question I have is, is trying to put this into context. How important was this speech to, to the people when they, when she was giving it to the fleets at Tilbury? Uh, What difference did it make? Um, At the time it made a very large difference because they were more eager and hopeful at smashing their armada, but Technically, since they had already driven them out, but they didn't know it at the time, nothing. So to summarize, it's a speech that may or may not have happened by a a person who may or may not have given good speeches at a period in history where the big pivotal event had already taken place. 
pretty but much it yeah. looked great in the film. <laughs> sure I'm being harsh. Sorry. Yeah. I have no more questions. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't. I, I, I'm slightly thrown by Kit because I was. I, I didn't realise there was any doubt as to whether it actually happened. I don't know if Kit can explain why he could help me by explaining why he's not convinced that it took place. I, I mean, I am not a Tudor historian. My understanding uh, was that the, the the sort of the pivotal moment at, at Tilbury does have sort of question marks over it. But someone else who's an expert in the period can probably give you a, a better insight there. The last thing that. the world needs is another Tudor historian, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it comes as a shock that my old sixth form history teacher has been making stuff up if this transpired. I think it, the, the issue that I've got, and it sort of goes back to Marcus's as well, really, is that I, I wonder when you've got a load of... I can understand that soldiers going to battle may be apprehensive as well, but I mean, I've, I've met a few soldiers who went who were in the Gulf War, and I imagine that if they were sitting... Just to go back to Marcus's a little bit, but it's the same point, you know. Well, some of them may have been moved by, you know, what Tim Collins said. There would have been others just pissing themselves and taking the piss in the background as well. So are we not putting too much emphasis on these sort of grand speeches and they're suddenly, you know, they're suddenly unable to make an army fight, you know, an extra an extra 10% or something like that. Is that we're the case? Applying, we're applying British squaddy logic to these speeches. I hope you apply that for Martin Luther King and Churchill too. Um, <laughs> we can come to that later on. But, um, and also, I mean, she didn't write it anyway, if she did say it and it was delivered. Isn't that, isn't that true? I'm not honestly certain. Um, I do know that there are a few people who were supposedly in the crowd at the time who had some variations of the speech. Um, not exactly the same thing, but it's still a toss up on whether or not it really did happen. I just like the fact that she was basically, you know, showing her people that, look, I may not be a king, but I'm just as good, if not better. I still will fight. I still will do everything a king would do even though I'm a woman. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair, if it, if it happened, as you say, she did everything she could have done in the, in the circumstances. Excellent. Okay. Right, okay. God, we really are zipping around in history, aren't we? Um, let me go to... Let's go, let's go to a boy next. Let's see what... Let's see what German Chris has managed to rake up to give <laughs> <laughs> The year is 1933. His German obsession tends to end in 1918. Oh, that's good. 1923, a beer hall in Munich. And that his German uniform fetish is a 1960s Lufthansa flight attendant, not Prince Harry style. I'm trying to defend you here, Chris. Someone should. Well, 1940 in Berlin. No, um, <laughs> so um, my choice is <laughs> uh, my choice this week is is a little more obscure. Um, in fact, I doubt if anyone's heard of it. Um, but it does not detract uh, from the necessity of this speech or the impact that it. Uh, well, I thought it had on the audience. I, I think Holmes going to tell me a new one on this one. Um, so I decided to concentrate, uh, as anyone that follows me on Twitter will know, that I've recently decided to concentrate only on the subjects that are closest to my heart and my writing for. Um, with the work I do and down the pub and um, seeing, seeing as I spoke about Alina last time, I thought I'd better talk about the Navy this time. <laughs> so um, also do podcasts count as speeches? I mean, um, <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> um, 
Uh, moving on, uh, it should be noted that the uh, only famous naval speech um, which has ever been given, that any, most of you will remember, um, was uttered by Nelson at the Battle of the Nile. Now, I haven't had a chance to check the exact wording with Kate Jamieson, but if I remember correctly, it goes something like this. England knows that Lady Hamilton is a virgin. Poke my eye out and cut off my arm if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> but as I've said, <laughs> as I've said before, that's correct. Ships I think. Yeah, are yeah, well yeah. Out, of, out of my area. Um, anyway, so um, I'm moving into more my area. So uh, before the First World War, uh, military planners were certain that the war would be fought and won at sea, <coughs> which it was. Um, Lund, uh, Royal Navy strategy was always to have double the number of ships as the next two powerful nations, which was formalised in the 1889 Naval, Naval Acts and uh, was a court with, if, you know, if you believe Marder, um, it was France and Russia. Well, in Germany... Uh, in the late 1890s, there was a rapid expansion of the Kaiserliche Marine, followed by the dreadnought arms race of 1905 to 1914, with Britain ultimately producing and stealing more, more dreadnoughts than Germany. As the war erupted, the Royal Navy was placed on standby, and it was believed that the Germans were put to sea for the greatest sea battle of all time, which would take place somewhere in the North Sea or the Skagerrak. Uh, the Germans, however, held their grounds. Uh, raids on Scarborough, Hartlepool and Yarmouth Reconnaissance in force at Dogger Bank, not dogging, and Helga Lambite were all fairly small scale and hardly decisive. For that, you have to look at Coronel, where the German uh, Ostasian Geschwader scored first blood and the Falklands where they were. Uh, moving on, <clears throat> on the uh, 31st of May, however, 1916, the Hoxie Flotter put to sea and, and Admiral John Jellicoe brought the Grand Fleet out to meet them with Admiral Beatty's battle cruisers in reconnaissance. Without boring you too much about the actual battle, because I know one, no, no one really cares apart from me, um, it would be accurate to describe um, that it was a very good day for Sheer and Tipper, uh, with sinking of 14 British ships, killing of 6,094 British sailors, for the loss of the pre-dreadnought Pommern, the battle cruiser Lutzov, which was sunk by her own ships because she was sinking, and the light cruisers Frauenlob, Weisbaden, Elbing and Rostock. Basically, the Germans met all their arms, aims for the battle. Despite images of the battlecruiser Seidlitz returning to port barely above the waterline and heavy damage to all of Hipper's battlecruisers, the Germans announced quite quickly that they had, um, through a press release, that they, um, that they had been involved in a massive battle with the British Navy and given them a bloody nose. In the American press, uh, news was spread very quickly from Berlin with the Pittsburgh Press, which was the name of the paper, weirdly, uh, reporting on the 2nd of June. Oh, God, here comes the accents. Uh, Engagement developed, uh, which, was which was successful for us and, con and continued during the night. In the engagement, we destroyed the large warship Vorspite, uh, the battlecruiser Queen Mary and Indefatigable, two armoured cruisers, apparently of the Achilles type, one small cruiser, uh, new flagships, and the destroyers Urban, Nestor and Alcaster, a number of torpedo boats and one submarine. This article um, then goes on about how many British battleships have been heavily damaged. For Jellicoe's forces, it was disappointing, to say the least. Morale was shaken at the sight of heavily damaged vessels returning to port, and, um, or, or not returning, as is the case. The nation's belief um, in the Royal Navy was shaken, and there have been reports of British ships being booed on their return. Somehow, the Kaiser's Navy had given the British a bloody nose and managed to get back on, to port unscathed. To make matters worse, Jellicoe didn't trust the press and did not allow them on aboard ships or to take or talk to his men. So the world saw the German side first. 
and only stony silence came from Scapa Flow, what was needed were words of reassurance. It's very difficult for an admiral to give a speech to all of his men, so instead a signal was sent to the fleet to be read to the ship's companies, and in it Jellicoe expressed his appreciation for the manner in which his ships fought, and, all, and for all the officers and men. Uh, Jellicoe would go on to congratulate his men for their hard work and fighting prowess in the face of the enemy, and blamed unfavourable weather conditions for robbing them of complete victory. He did have to bite the bullet uh, on the undeniable losses. The Invincible, uh, Queen Mary and Indefatigable had all exploded with all hands. Defence had, had cut across the German battleships and was decimated. Warspite was, was a wreck. Spitfire had a superstructure blown away by the shockwave. But he goes on to say, I'm not going to do an accent for Jellicoe because I respect him too much. Our losses were heavy and we missed many of our most gallant comrades. But although it is very difficult to obtain accurate information as the enemy's losses i have no doubt that we shall find out that they were certainly not less than our own sufficient information has already been received for me to make that make that statement with confidence he went on to say um, as soon as um, more information was available he would de disseminate it but it hadn't um, but hadn't wanted to um, delay his appreciation of the work of the fleet and my confidence in the future of complete victory he finished up with this missive. I cannot close without stating that the wonderful spirit and fortitude of the wounded has filled me with the greatest of admiration. I am more proud than ever to have the honour of commanding a fleet manned by such officers and men. Jellicoe was, um, was a respected commanding officer, and although um, he did not have the dash and cocksure nature of the irresponsible and frankly downright dangerous BT, he was uh, considered a safe pair of hands. His words um, sated some of the bad feeling and poor, poor morale. The weather got the weather got away with it, got in the way of us. We gave as good as we got. You know, Jellicoe could see the bigger picture. Maybe it was just us that got plastered, and the Germans got took it harder elsewhere. Within days, the English speaking speaking world's media began to tell a different story, one of British dominance, and that yes, there were losses, but that um, the complete drubbing of the German um, the Germans had claimed didn't happen either it was a, uh, it was a um, it wasn't it wasn't a world-changing speech in the same way as dr king's i have a dream uh, it did not um but ultimately i can't even bother to read the rest of my stuff ultimately it didn't really change anything but to the men and the, and the crew who had suffered so horrendously in that day and night action it meant the world that the commanding officer could actually appreciate them for all their hard work and say, you know, good work, lads. We've actually done a lot better than we thought we did. And as a brief aside, as someone who feels very underappreciated in their job, <clears throat> does it not help when your manager turns around and says, well done, guys, that was a good day today. And I think that's what makes that speech that much more important. Um, I would like to say two things about that. And with much love, because you know I love you, my little ginger friend. Um, firstly, if the only part <laughs> of the battle with you is the Kaiser, I think you're slightly wading into problematic territory. And also, I just love that your German accent sounds exactly like Aid Edmondson pretending to be the Red Baron. To me, it was more hair flick, to be honest. That's what I thought he was going for. <laughs> I was trying not to be Lieutenant Gruber. <laughs> Holmes is a connoisseur of boaty stuff. 
who has been heard to utter the words, who gives a shit about Jutland? <laughs> well, I think as well, he did at the start say that the, uh, he tried to hide it with a theatrical cough, but he did say the first war was won at sea, which I think we all know is, yeah. <laughs> not what not most of us think on here. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't really convinced by this on a variety of levels. I don't think his words were particularly inspiring. It seemed like he was sort of forced into it for sort of PR reasons rather than anything else. I mean, you mentioned it was sort of signal to the ships. I suppose you did, did, did then go on to say that it was eventually reported um, yeah, yeah. around the world. But I mean... Surely the men could have seen, saw what happened anyway. So they did they need this level of reassuring? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, because the battle was over such a wide area and uh, ships are very um, enclosed. So you only ever really see the damage that is done to your ship. If you happen to be one of the poor sods that was on um, Warspite, you wouldn't have seen what happened pretty much to any of the other ships. You would have just seen your ship barely making it back to port. And if you're on one, if you're on the Iron Duke, you would have um, noticed that there was other ships blowing up, but nothing really happened to you. It's, it's very closed. So for I think for if you were on a ship that got shafted, um, then you'd, you'd want sort of reassurance to say, okay, yeah, you got screwed, but overall it did really well. I mean, like I said, the, the Spitfire was unlucky. It sailed right up next to a German battleship and took a shockwave. But other other ships scored um, three other destroyers sank the Pommern without damage. So it's, it's it sort of swings and roundabouts. Really, only the only person that can really see the whole thing is 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 Jellico. Okay, because okay. I couldn't tell the chronology from the way you thought. I thought um, I couldn't tell. So when they they sent the signal that they were, they were all still at sea, or that they hadn't arrived back in port. No, they they had. They they sort of, they took several days. Um, the fleet managed to get back on the 1st of June, but then all the undamaged ships went back out because they thought the Germans would come back for a second pop and they wanted to be ready for them. But the damaged ships had to stay behind. And then he came back and made the signal, I think it was on the 2nd of June. Okay. I mean, I did notice you mute yourself, you admitted that um, it wasn't a world-changing speech and it didn't really change it. <laughs> oh, Kit. Well, I'm glad that uh, the Chris is, is saying that Jutland was a draw, which is what I've got out of this. Um, just <laughs> waiting for the camera to update and going apoplectic. Um, one thing I found interesting, <laughs> was, did, did you say the Germans did a press release? Yeah, they, they went straight to the, neutral, to the neutral press and said, look, everybody, we sunk the Royal Navy. And everyone went, oh, shit, because that, that's big news. I mean, the Royal Navy was like the ultimate force at sea. And so for the Kaiser's upstart little navy to roll up, Sink. Well, I mean, considering what they did sink was quite impressive, um, but it looked like it was it was a big morale factor, especially for the Germans, because uh, the main reason that the German fleet went to sea was that um, they were getting criticised for spending their whole time in port whilst the German army was suffering in, on the Western Front, uh, which apparently is the the only front in the war, not the East. And um, it's not here. so it, it was a massive morale burst. Um, for, for them and also for the German sailors themselves because the main reason they were sat on their arse in the fleet all the time was because Kaiser wouldn't let them out but they'd finally come out they caused a hell of a lot of damage and so Shear and Hippard sort of bounced off the ships went straight over to a press release and went look what we've done isn't this fantastic and um, the English had to deny it although the losses that the Germans claimed were fairly accurate and they, they didn't lose anywhere near as many ships or men 
Okay, is it with the exception of the war spider, I think, which you mentioned? Um, all right, no further questions on this one. Just, well, just one more from me then, Chris. So did, did he only issue this speech as a response to the press release? So if the press release hadn't happened, would this speech have taken place? Yeah, yeah, it would have. Um, he, uh, it, it, was, um, uh, it was necessary for, for, the, for the men in general um, because of what had happened and the amount of losses that they had suffered. Um, like I said, with the, with the three battle cruisers that just exploded and took all crew with them, uh, and they, they lost a whole another squadron got wiped out. So I, I think this speech would have happened anyway to sort of say to say to the men, ignore. I, I, I don't think Jellico really gave two hoots what Sheer said in the press. Sheer audacity. <laughs> I'm so waiting for that. Uh, we got so I'm really glad that so many of these are turning out to be non-English, and actually, uh, we're going uh, proper esoteric and weird now. James, what language are you? Well, you're not actually going to speak it in Norwegian. God help us, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> and also, this is a speech that I first heard because of a movie, and it's also a speech that's always been forgotten to history. And it's a speech done by Hack on the 7th on April 1940 after the German invasion. Um, this was to his cabinet at a, a meeting at Nibesund after his meeting with, I think it's Peter Brower, um, to refuse the German demands. And Hack on the 7th has actually done some amazing speeches, which you can actually read still. But this one has almost been lost to time. There is only small segments that remain in English that I found. And it was also broadcast to radio. And it's probably his most impactful speech, despite its short length. Because this was a speech that inspired the not only the Norwegian government to resist the Germans, but also the Norwegian people, especially throughout the war. And considering the amount of forces the Germans had to put into Norway, it just had a big impact on the war. And this speech also had a big impact on the Norwegian constitution and the role of the king, especially as a constitutional monarchy. And also the lengths the royal family of Norway would go for their country and their, muscle, their motto, Alt for Norg, All for Norway. Now, the speech itself, the small segment that did happen that as I found is... I am deeply affected by the responsibility laid on me if the German demand is rejected. The responsibility for the calamities that will befall people and country is indeed so grave that I dread to take it. It rests with the government to decide, but my position is clear. For my part, I cannot accept the German demands. It would conflict with all that I have considered to be my duty as King of Norway since I came to this country nearly 35 years ago. Now, afterwards, he went on to say that he couldn't appoint Quisling as prime minister, as the Germans demanded, since he knew neither the people nor the Storting had confidence in him. However, if the cabinet felt otherwise, the king said he would abdicate, and there's also reports that his whole family would abdicate, so as not to stand in the way of the government's decision. Now, up to this point, the government was split. The government was, some were saying they'd give in to the German demands, others were saying resist. And what the Minister of Church and Education later wrote, Niels Helmstedt, this made a great impression on us all. More clearly than ever before, we could see the man behind the words, 
the king who had drawn a line for himself and his task, a line from which he could not deviate. We had through the five years in government learned to respect and appreciate our king. And now through his words, he came to us as a great man, just and forceful, a leader in these fateful times to our country. The government united behind the king. They advised him not to give in to demands. And this formed the backbone of probably the Norwegian resistance throughout the war and his later Christmas speeches and his speeches to other countries, including America during the war while in exile. And this speech not only put the power in the hands of the government and that he would not surrender his country, which obviously has an impact for the constitution and whatever happened afterwards, but just the power, the simpleness of this speech, the power it gave as well, especially coming from such an old man at the time, it blew me away. It had an impact from me and that it's almost been lost to history. Most written segments about this will not record what he actually said. I just felt it needed to be said here. I'm slightly confused why this why the statement has been lost to history because it's taken from a film which we talked about on this a while it's, ago. I'd say it's mainly because of the film and it's mainly remembered in Norway, but the wider, especially in the English speaking world, I've I've been trawling to see how many places it's written and I've only found it written in one place. Uh, at least in English. Was that on the back of the DVD? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean I mean no. it is it is quite inspiring, and I've, I've, all I've done is seen the film, and he does come across as very well in that. But isn't it? It's basically to do with a constitutional issue, and he's a sort of. I'm going to make up a. It's, a, it's sort of a ceremonial monarch only. He's got no constitutional power. Yeah. Half, um, half the half the issue is that the Germans want him to surrender and put an appointment in play, appoint a government, a sort of government, a government to run on behalf of the Germans. But he doesn't have that power anyway. He's only a ceremonial monarch. No, but he did have a lot of influence. And this speech sort of cemented the fact that he wouldn't make that decision. He wouldn't have the power. The power would be in the government. And it sort of, it formed the backbone of the government's resistance and also the resistance of the people, knowing how far he would go for them for the whole war on. The Germans did make overtures to himself and the government after this point. But eventually, especially with regards to this speech, they realised that it wouldn't be successful. I mean, they immediately tried to kill him afterwards with the bombings uh, immediately after this speech. So this just really cemented the fact that the Norwegians would resist, that he would resist, that the Germans would not have an easy victory and wouldn't get their way. Okay, Kit? Um, one thing that struck me in the speech, sort of having a look at it online, is he says that I've considered it to, to, to be my duty of King of Norway since I came to this country nearly 35 years ago. So was he not Norwegian? Who was Hakon? He, he, was, he was part of the Danish royal family. Him, he was elected to be King of Norway in 1905. Um, on this, actually, he, they, they originally offered the King... Um, the crown to him and he said he would only take the crown if the people wanted it and there was a specifically a referendum on this issue and he was elected in 1905 on the so back he was, of that he was elected to a ceremonial position effectively effectively a ceremonial position yes but he did have a lot of influence in his role uh, and one thing he mentioned was his his ongoing christmas speeches um i don't know if this is like the ri christmas lectures 
Uh, did they did like the BBC just sort of stick him on or something? What what happened to him? Did he leave the country? Did he stay in the country? Um, what happened eventually? He stayed in the country until it was no longer safely possible to do so. Originally, they tried to go to Sweden, but Sweden said they would inter the royal family if they entered there. Um, so eventually, he was evacuated by the British and formed the backbone of the Norwegian government in exile in London. The Christmas speeches did start during World War II and were transmitted to Norway. And some of these still exist uh, in the Norwegian archives and on one of their websites, I believe. Um, but then it became a tradition afterwards. But they started to form the backbone of the resistance to know that the Norwegian people to carry on resisting and were not alone. Is this why we have a, um, a Christmas tree from Norway in, uh, in Trafalgar Square every year? Yeah, George V's sister married him. Yep. Maud. I'm into the okay, garden, Maud. She looks like George V with boobs. It's quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this does sound like the sort of, the, you know, that pivotal moment in the King's speech, only without all the fake stuttering. So, um, <laughs> thanks for no questions. Right, okay. Let's okay. move swiftly on because we've still got loads to go. Let's go to Alina. Are you going to stick with World War II? I'm guessing you are. No, you're not. You have, you have appointed yourself in the absence of MR, our ancient cheerleader, haven't you? No, I thought I'd go a different direction today. Okay. I'm going to surprise you all because I would like you to go back to the 30th of January, 1939, to the Reichstag. It is the sixth anniversary of the seizure of power of this one man. His right-hand man, Goebbels... No, fuck it, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> April Fools! Is this the announcement that he only has one ball? <laughs> <laughs> this is like one of the most anti-Semitic speeches. I and did my hair done uh, today and my hairdresser was saying that her daughter's learning about Hitler in year six and she came home and went, Mummy, he was a really horrible man and he only had one testicle. <laughs> At least they're teaching Hitler in primary schools, I guess. I was going to try and pull it off. That's because they teach World War II history from like key stage one through to postgrad and you barely cover any other era. Because it's the most important part of history, clearly. Just shut up. You're not even doing World War II today. Come on, ancient cheerleader, go. I am the ancient cheerleader. I was going to come on here and say, look, mine should win only because Edith Hall says so. If you don't know who Edith Hall is, go and Google her now. Because Edith Hall is like Mary Beard. She is all-knowing. But she does have a really, really... So what I'm going to tell you is kind of like the tip of the iceberg. She's got a really fantastic lecture um, about this. So I would highly go... I think it's a Gresham College um, website or whatever. It's really interesting. So I do advise you to go and listen to her because she is fabulous. So yeah, I should win because Edith Hall says so. But we're going back to 431 BC. This is a speech by Pericles. Pericles was a Greek statesman. And what was this speech all about? Well, this was at the funeral of the first Athenian soldiers, which was at the end of the Peloponnesian War. It is documented, of course, by who should have won, by the way, the best historian in history, Thucydides. It was an established Athenian practice in late 5th BC. 
and it was a public funeral of all who had died in the war. The remains were left in a tent for three days, offerings were made, then they were buried in a public grave, and a speech was made by a prominent Athenian. But the most interesting thing is, there's a lot of politicians, okay, I'm going to underline, I might be shitting on some of you, again. Uh, it's actually used by a lot of politicians in their modern speeches. So I'm going to start with Edward Everett, and he describes, and I'm not going to read the whole speech because it's really bloody long, but he describes Pericles and the Athenian example. So he makes the speech at uh, Gettysburg on the 19th of November, 1863. And he says, it was appointed by law in Athens that the, I can't say this word, so the dis my dyslexia is kicking in, um, obsequious, whatever, of the citizens who fell in battle should be performed at the public expense and the most honourable manner. Their bones were carefully gathered up from the funeral pyre where their bodies were consumed and brought home to the city. There for three days before the internment, they lay in state beneath tents of honour to receive the votive offerings of friends and relatives, flowers, weapons, precious ornaments, painted vases. The last tributes of surviving affection. Ten coffins of funeral, Cyprus received the honourable deposit, one for each of the tribes of the city, and an eleventh in memory of the unrecognised, but not therefore unhonoured dead, and of those who remains could not be recovered. On the fourth day, the mournful procession was formed. Mothers, wives, sisters, daughters led the way, and to them it was permitted by the simplicity of ancient matters to utter aloud their lamentations for the beloved and the lost. The male relatives and friends of the deceased followed. Citizens and strangers closed the train. I mean, this speech goes on, absolutely goes on. It's really long. And he basically emulates Pericles. He talks about how um, the Athenian example is the way that we should be following in America. However, he is not the only person to be using his uh, Pericles' speech. Um, if you go and look at JFK, JFK's inauguration speech, um, his uh, classic, he's sorry, his speechwriter was a classicist. So um, Pericles states in his speech, I quote, such is the city for whose stake these men nobly fought and died. They could not bear the thought that she might be taken from them. And every one of us who survived should gladly toil on her behalf. And more or less in layman's terms, JFK says in his speech, ask not what your country can do for you, Ask what you can do for your country. So how many of you can say that your speech has been reused by politicians like over the past thousands of years, right? So therefore, my speech should be the best speech because people are reusing it. Not only JFK is reusing this speech, however, also Obama and so many other different politicians. So if I would go and delve into all of your speeches... I believe that we would find some sort of trace of Pericles and not only him, wait for it, Lincoln, Lincoln is also another one that ripped off Pericles because he used a similar structure, the language, okay, and, and it just was an emulation of Pericles. Pericles has inspired speeches for thousands and thousands of years um, and that's, that's me. Thank you very much. Okay. Mic drop. Oh, Merrin's shaking her head. Merrin, why are you shaking your head? 
because Pericles was adopting the ethos, pathos, logos approach, which is adopted by other people. It wasn't actually Pericles' speech. It was the, the modal of rhetoric that he used that other people used to great effect as well. There are about 150 um, different types of device used in rhetoric, and he did use a lot of them. He made a lot of them very usable and emulatable by other great orators, but it wasn't necessarily him. It was the rhetoric that he used. But he was the first, no, so therefore... No, he wasn't. <laughs> therefore, Pericles should win. He's not listening. He's like, la, 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 la. <laughs> he wasn't the first by about, like, zillion miles. Okay. Well, Edith Hall is right, and I believe Edith Hall in that way. So I stand by Edith Hall. Holmes. I, I, I struggled to follow it a little bit, to be honest. I mean, because the first example you gave, which was, you know, it was almost like a sort of um, process for remembering the dead, which I think is quite good, but it seems to be that he established a process rather than a speech, or did I misunderstand that? No, basically he described what happened at Pericles' um, speech. And then they followed it word for word, was it, in terms of how they treated the dead? I, I couldn't tell if the Gettysburg thing, was that how they bury their dead, or was that what he read out as, as to how he thought they should treat their dead? No, that's what Pericles did. That's what happened at the funeral for Pericles' um, soldiers. So they followed, they followed what he did before. So in a way, that's just sort of a, a funeral plan rather than a, a speech, per se. Well, he did use it as a speech at Gettysburg. That's exactly what he said, quote for quote. And then the JFK example, I, I missed it a little bit because you broke up. Could you say that again? Ask what you can't do for your country or whatever. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And what was the, the Pericles equivalent? All right. Such is the city for whose sake these men nobly fought and died. They could not bear the thought that she might be taken from them. And every one of us who survived should gladly toil on her behalf. Okay, so there's there's elements of it, I suppose. No, nothing more from me. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that other people sort of take samples from this. Does that mean that Shakespeare isn't the greatest writer in history? You know, all great people take samples from from previous previous work. He is the original master. And Shakespeare stole a lot of stuff. Except Mary's <laughs> not the original master. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So did David Bowie? wasn't the original master. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The one thing we do know about Pericles is that um, eventually, politically, he was brought down by another orator, who I think was Cleon. Um, so obviously his power of, uh, of loquaciousness did fleet him at some point in his life. Do we know too much about Pericles and, and what happened afterwards? We only know from what uh, Thucydides writes. Who should have won? Great, historian, clearly. <laughs> I'm so yeah, sorry about that. Not even one ancient historian, and we had swear three of them, didn't even place in the top three. That's yeah. sad. It should well, have been well, an ancient guy. Coming, coming back to the little trap I set that you decided to completely ignore, um, the only reason I know about Pericles is because of a play by Shakespeare, um, not being a sort of an ancient historian. I was kicked off other people in terms of the devices he used. And then he, he inspired other people, although they were just using similar tools rather than the actual speech. More importantly, Beth is eating all the skin. <laughs> no defence. 
but at least I'm making an effort by doing something ancient and nobody else's. And I don't really care if I don't win. So no, well done for broadening the scope. Uh, tragically, Beth has finished all the skittles. She's holding the empty bag upside down. They're all gone. How many servings does it say is in that bag? Uh, four. <laughs> Brilliant. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, right, okay. Let's go to, let's go to Zach. Zach. Right, I'm being absolutely predictable this week, and I'm not even sorry. So uh, buckle up and get comfy. On the 4th of June, 1940, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill rose in the House of Commons to deliver a statement on recent events in Britain's war against Nazi Germany. The previous two months had seen a staggering turnaround in the war, and with it the balance of power in Europe. In the space of eight weeks, the Nazis had toppled in quick succession Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands and Belgium, sent the British expeditionary force reeling and desperately trying to evacuate at Dunkirk. And the defence plans for France had been left in tatters. The Allies were losing the war and losing it badly. The only shred of comfort was the Dunkirk evacuations, which had been taking place over the preceding days, which had saved 338,000 men, including 139,000 Frenchmen. Yet almost everything else had had to be abandoned in the process. Most of the tanks, artillery and heavy machine guns, to say nothing of almost 500 aircraft. Before the month was out, France would have surrendered to the Nazis and Britain would be truly alone. It was one of the darkest moments of the Second World War. Yet when Churchill rose, he did not do so with the widespread support of the House of Commons. Much of his support came from the Labour Party, not his own Conservative colleagues. Not only did he not have the unequivocal support of his party, he was also not the king's preference as prime minister. Churchill had only become PM when, at a meeting with Chamberlain and the other contender for the job, Lord Halifax, he had remained tight-lipped about whether he would be willing to accept Halifax as PM. Halifax was arguably more inclined to consider terms with Hitler, having worked as foreign secretary in Chamberlain's administration and therefore having been at least partially supportive of the notion of appeasement. The war effort therefore hung on a knife edge. Church needed to carry King, Commons and the public with him, convincing all that resistance was the best course of action. He therefore began to deliver a statement on the progress of the war. What followed was a masterclass in political spin. Emphasising the seeming impossibility of success at Dunkirk, he laid on as thickly as you can imagine the scale of German efforts to destroy the BEF 
and French forces bottled up around the port before then outlining at length the efforts and heroism that had led to the successful evacuation. He was frank about the reality. Wars are not won by evacuations, he reminded MPs, yet he emphasised the, the victory within the defeat. Evoking the legend of King Arthur and Crusader knights, he explained the significance that Dunkirk represented for the continued defence of the British Isles. And then Churchill embarked on the final paragraphs of his speech. This was his attempt to steady the ship, to steal the reserve of the people and politicians, the servicemen and the sovereign, convincing them to back him, to back the nation and to back the cause against tyranny. They were words which have become iconic in the memory of the Second World War and are synonymous with the spirit of resistance. I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states may have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even which I do not for a moment believe, this island or large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. It's an oratory which few people can do justice to, I certainly can't. I don't have Churchill's gravitas and the gravelly voice to electrify in the way that he could. Why, though, was this such a significant speech? Fight on the beaches was not the end of the war, not the start of the end and not even the end of the beginning. But it was a pivotal moment in the course of the war. Churchill would need to make many such speeches, but this was an emphatic statement of resistance at a time when it was sorely needed. To seek terms at that point of the war would have taken Britain out of the conflict altogether, accepting Hitler's hegemony over Europe, leaving him free to turn on the Soviet Union without the nightmare of a two-front war. Peace in 1940 would mean no Battle of Britain, no D-Day in the way that we know it. Churchill sent a clear message to the nation and the world on that date. He was a man with a plan and an appreciation of reality, not just idle words and rhetoric. Fight on the beaches meant that the war continued and in the process dictated the course of the next 50 years of not just British history, not just European history, but the history of the globe, ultimately ensuring that freedom of thought, religion and expression remained alive. And for that, I think it classes as the greatest of speeches in history.
Well done, Zach. Um, yeah, that one had to be done well, otherwise you're going to look like a schmuck. So congratulations, because you don't look like a schmuck. Kit? Uh, dropping the big guns there, Zach. Um, bringing, out, bringing out Big Daddy Winston. Um, it's very hard to argue against the oratory of Winston Churchill. My question is, why this speech of all of the speeches that he's given? Because so many could be argued to be really pivotal. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's almost a hard one to pick which Churchill speech you go for. For me, it's about the circumstance and the fact that he's taking what is a colossal disaster in the form of the, the fall of France, effectively. Yes, OK, the evacuation of Dunkirk is the only kind of icing on a very bitter pill that has to be swallowed. But he's able to turn that and give a clear indication that all is not lost. If you wait until later in Churchill's premiership, He's on a much stronger basis politically because he's had the time to build the support within the party to demonstrate the vision. When he delivers the speech um, of, of th this uh, fight them on the beaches speech, his other great speech, if you will, is the one in which he frankly admits to the comments that he has nothing to offer but toil, tear, blood and sweat. And it's a speech which does not go down well, goes down perfectly well with his Labour colleagues. But on his own side, amongst the Conservatives, there's a stony silence amongst many of them. I was going to say, the one thing that always strikes me quite interesting is this is actually the preoration to the speech. This isn't the speech itself, the bit that we've quoted. This is the addendum. So this is the, the, the bit that he tags on the end. So he's done this whole statement on the situation on Dunkirk, about the scale of the evacuations. It was actually prearranged in the sense that a week beforehand, he had told the Commons that he would deliver a speech at this time on this date about what had happened at Dunkirk. And at that moment in time, their estimation was that they might get 20 or 30,000 men away, certainly nothing on the scale that they did. So he took this opportunity to actually put the, turn the whole thing on its head and say, we've actually done far better. And that gives us hope for the future. And that in itself meant that rather than taking the evacuation of Dunkirk and using that as a tool of leverage to kind of threaten the Nazis when it came to peace negotiations, he could use that instead as a tool to convince the nation that there was something worth fighting for here and that that fight had a plausibility of success. Holmes? Yeah, I, I've always had a slight issue with how this speech has been interpreted over the years. And I... I take the point that it's important at the time and it's important that he got the government to rally around him. But I think it's become, you know, it's become so sort of mythologised a little bit. It's like, I think it's slightly disrespectful to ordinary people who live through the war. Portray, it almost portrays them as, you know, slight simpletons. All they need to hear is this speech from Churchill and they'll put up with anything. And I don't, I don't that wasn't the case. So I think that part of it, I think... Um, has been massively overemphasized. I would agree with that completely, but at the same time, you need to carry public opinion with you in order to win a conflict, in order to do anything political. And imagine if there was somebody who wasn't as capable as Churchill. Imagine if Chamberlain, for example, had managed to cling to power. A few days before the Nazis begin their onslaught across the Western European nations, Chamberlain famously turns around in the House of Commons and smugly claims that Hitler has missed the bus when it comes to the war effort. So it takes a particular type of individual to write a speech like that, 
to then be able to engage with the public. And this was one of Churchill's appeals that for all that he was unashamedly a Tory and by no means was what you'd class today as a commoner, he was, it had enough quirks and enough ability when it came to speaking to actually carry the body of public opinion with him. Without that, with somebody who was far more distant from the public, you could make the argument that actually perhaps the anti-war movement would have gained more traction amongst the public and therefore stymied the war effort. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that either. I'm talking about how it's been interpreted subsequently. You know, as in they'll take anything that happens, but all they need is a few words from Winston and that'll be it. I mean, we know that, you know, they had to change the benefit system because originally people were really pissed off because their house would be bombed and they were homeless and didn't have any money for 30 days or something like that. So they had to really tighten down on, on things like that, which arguably were equally as important to morale, but tend to get missed out from the narrative because all we hear is this speech. And it was like, if Uncle Winston says it, it's got to be all right. You know, that type of thing. Um, so I'm going to close the there. But do we blame the speech writer for the way in which other people have subsequently interpreted it? Or do we take it in the manner in which it is given, which is to reassure people, to bolster morale, which ultimately, you know, you can listen to the speech as, as everybody probably has done probably many times and understand the sentiment that is behind what he's doing. And I agree with you. We have absolutely overplayed this whole kind of sense of national unity, the whole myth of the blitz. Um, this kind of stiff upper lip and people pulling together, a lot of it is just not true. But the sentiment behind the the speech is certainly there. And I think it's difficult to suggest that there wasn't at least a significant degree of impact, if only because this is seized upon by the British propaganda machine as a way of bolstering support for the war. Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. No. Meryn, are you going to do a short one? I am. I'm going to give it a go anyway. Demosthenes, the third Philippic. Marcus Tullius, General Douglas MacArthur's duty on a country. Frederick Douglas. John F. Kennedy's decision to go to the moon. These are the speeches that speechwriters dissect to their core ingredients. They nourish us. They feed our appetite for ethos, pathos and logos. But there is also simple oratory that we absolutely devour. When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. Spoken slowly and deliberately with the speaker taking sips of water as he did so. That was the philosophical contemplative response to a Kung Fu kick controversy back in the 1990s by a Frenchman wearing shorts and a T-shirt. He sat suddenly after being thrown in front of the media, having been given community service as sentencing for the assault on a fan at Crystal Palace. His only words during the entire affair were those two sentences. It was one of the most bizarre con press conferences in footballing history. I am not a man, he said. I am, he orated, Monsieur Eric Daniel Pierre Cantona. Those 17 words in themselves are worthy of commemoration. Made headlines at the time. Wasn't his greatest speech, however. It was surpassed by a short yet sombre rendition of some heartfelt well thought out and yet concise bon mot, when the mercurial Cantona was accepting, eulogizing in fact, the receipt of the UEFA President's Award. I'm going to read it twice because it's so short. And against such competitive elements as Churchill's words, and I'm sure we will have other greats after me, I would ask you to consider the breadth and scope of this speech's capacity to encapsulate so much for the speaker and his audience in so few words and I will try to explain how and why he does it. 
As flies wanton boys, we are to the gods. They kill us for the sport. Soon the science will not only be able to slow down the aging of the cells, soon the science will fix the cells to the state and so we become eternal. Only accidents, crimes, wars still, still kill us. But unfortunately, crimes and wars will multiply. I love football, thank you. That is what he said as he took the award. Now let me read it to you again and listen to the words. As flies to wanton boys, we are to the gods. They kill us for the sport. This is Shakespeare. Why is Cantona quoting Shakespeare as he takes the prize? Shakespeare's seemingly got nothing to do with football, or does it? Metaphor, my beloveds, metaphor. Cantona is going to town here on the political class, the gods in this metaphor, in football, UEFA and FIFA. King Eric is quoting from King Lear. Gloucester speaks these words as he wanders around on the heath. He's been blinded by Cornwall and Regan. It's about searching for the ultimate victory, dealing with consequence, avoiding the profound despair of a situation that, quite frankly, might drive you to desire your own death, a bit like the transfer window. More importantly, these words emphasise one of the great game's chief themes, namely the question of whether with or without a referee, there is justice in the universe. Gloucester suggesting that, like flies, there is no order to complex things, or at least no good order to, to the things that he can control, and that man on his own cannot impose his ideas upon the harsh and inflexible rules of the world in which he lives. What does this remind us of again? They kill for the spot, he says. Instead of divine justice, there is only the sport here of the vicious, inscrutable referee who rewards cruelty and delights in suffering to some extent. Perhaps I might venture, Cantona is reflecting upon his 91 to 92 season with Leeds in which against West Ham, he suffered the indignity of a, of a nil-nil draw being denied a first science will not only be able to slow down the aging of the cells, soon science will fix the cells to the state, he says, and so we become eternal. What is this? Is this man mad or is he genius? Madness, genius, so close together. There's pathos in this statement. The keys to great speech making, as any fool knows, are ethos and pathos and logos. And Cantona goes to the heart of the human condition here. Footballers are defined by their limitations, their health, their reputation, age and death. Often there are players, he said, who have only football as a way of expressing themselves and never develop any other interest. And when they no longer play football, they no longer do anything. They no longer exist, or rather they have the sensation of no longer existing. That's what the man said when he was challenged for this rhetoric. Human reason is what he was referring to. The ability to reason as much to act, to think about how you move forward on the pitch as much as how you do not. The ability to recognise the challenges in front of you. These two are part of the human condition. And Cantona epitomises this when he says, only accidents, crimes and wars will still kill us. He is talking about football. But unfortunately, crimes and wars multiply. And then he finishes his acceptance speech with the words that epitomize his raison d'etre, his coup d'etat and the plume de maton that encapsulates the importance of brevity, subject, appeal and the audience's reactions. It's that ethos, pathos and logos connection again. 
He finishes the speech with something so pure, so simple, we cannot but revel in its genius. I love football. Thank you. <laughs> well done. <laughs> My mind is slightly blown because I was only little and I just remember that he was regarded as a total fucking loon and now it turns out he was a genius, Holmes. Yeah, I mean, that... that... That's one of his best speeches, but I, I like the time he called the uh, French national team manager, Henry Michel, a bag of shit on television. <laughs> That's got to be up there with it as well. <laughs> with his, yeah. the French ambassador in Elizabeth as well. There, there are I, so many great speeches. I just wanted to do something different. Yeah. I, I noticed, Mary, you were flashing around at speeches that changed the world book earlier. Yeah. And that's, that's not in there, is it? Because I looked at that briefly in a charity shop the other day, but then I thought, fuck it. I've got room. It's a really good one. It's a really good one. If anybody, it, it's often found in charity shops because it's got a DVD and play, well, a CD player and, and you know, and people listen to it and then throw it away. But it's a really good one. Yeah. It's not in there. Cantonar's not in it. Philistines. Kit. Thank you for appealing to my sensibilities as a Leeds fan, um, which I think is a first on this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, Cantonar certainly did some stuff. Um, it was interesting that you sort of mentioned his, his, his brief bon mot. Um, so the one question I've got for you as a speechwriter is when does a quote become a speech? That's a great question. When does a quote become a speech? Are we talking about the length of the quote? Yeah, we're, talk we're talking about the length, we're talking about the quality, uh, we're talking about what it needs to include to be a speech. To be a speech, it does not need an audience. It just needs to be orated. It needs to be spoken. So at that point, even a short quote can be a speech. Uh, in that case, I, I prefer the seagulls one. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Right, okay. Ooh, we've got, who have we got left? We've got one, two, three. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, oh there's still five of us to go. Where should we go next? Let's go alternate and go to a boy. Let's go to Clive. On the afternoon of 19th November 1863, while fighting the American Civil War continued, Abraham Lincoln and dignitaries from the Union side gathered to dedicate the cemetery at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on a site where, four and a half months earlier, the Union and Confederate armies had fought the crucial and bloody battle with which that place is synonymous. Around 7,000 Americans from both sides had died in the battle. A further 40,000 had been wounded or imprisoned. The fate of those was unlikely to have been good. The battle which, was brought to, the battle which brought to a halt Lee's invasion of the North and marked the turn in the tide which, two years later, would lead to Union victory, was greeted with jubilation by the victors. The Philadelphia Inquirer proclaimed, Victory! Waterloo eclipsed! George Templeman, strong, a diarist from New York City, wrote, 
The results of this victory are priceless. The charm of Robert E. Lee's invincibility is broken. The army of the Potomac has at last found a general that can handle it and has stood, up, stood nobly up to its terrible work in spite of its long disheartening list of hard-fought failures. Copperheads are palsied and dumb for the moment, at least. Government is strengthened fourfold at home and abroad. Whether or not the battle was decisive, and there is debate about this, it was undeniable, a key, undeniably a key turning point. It put pays to Lee's advance and to his ambitions of waging an offensive war. From then on, he was on the back foot. From then on, the economically and demographically superior union were in the ascendant. The dedication of ceremony took place as the reinterment of the Union dead in the National Cemetery continued. The exercises started in mid-October, and at the time of the dedication, it was about half complete. The crowd that gathered, comprising political and military figures from the North, together with other notables, journalists, most probably the families and comrades of some of the dead, as well as locals, would have sat and stood amidst freshly dug graves, some filled and some awaiting their tenants. The cemetery, like the war, was far from complete. Lincoln's role of the day was relatively small. The ceremony started with some music, and then a prayer, and then more music before the centerpiece. A two-hour-long ramble by Edward Everett, entitled The Battles of Gettysburg. The 69-year-old, who was renowned as the finest if not most succinct, orator of the U.S. compared the battle to those of antiquity, such as Marathon, in America no doubt known as Snickers, and spoke of the War of the Roses, was there a chocolate theme, and the Thirty Years' War. He spoke also of, of, the, of the reconciliation that followed those latter conflicts. Once he had finished, the audience was awakened by a hymn, sung by the Baltimore Glee Club, and then Lincoln stood to speak. It must be said that in Everett, Lincoln had possibly the ideal warm-up act. I've always found that when speaking at conferences, taking the slot immediately after a Swiss actuary means that my words, however dull and inconsidered, are welcomed by the audience. It's a bit like speaking after James on Down the Pub. Lincoln's task was accordingly made easier by Everett, having numbed the minds of all those in attendance. Remember, these were days when no one had a phone with Twitter and the gram, they had to listen. Lincoln used few words, Amiga 271. This was in itself genius. His was not the hour or more rambling of a Trump rally or the waffle interspersed with the slogan of Johnson. This was not even the carefully crafted made-for-TV soundbite of Jack Kennedy. This was a speech made for the media of its time, newspapers. And because it was scribbled down by reporters and found its way into newspapers all over the country, it is remembered word for word today. It was the perfect length and it was perfectly constructed. 
It starts with a reference to the past, to the foundation of the nation. It continues by referencing the war that was still being fought. It refers to the dead, but does not refer to the army or cause for which they fought. He refers simply to those who died in the battle. And while the cemetery was for the Union dead, his words applied to all who had perished. He refers to their sacrifice and then ends by referencing the task that lay ahead, the task of reunion, reconciliation, restoration and rebuilding. So, as this is a short speech, I can read it to you. Now, no recordings were made of Lincoln actually speaking those words, and so we have no idea of what he sounded like on that November afternoon. But here's my best You might have been a cockney. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that battlefield as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honoured dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. After Lincoln spoke, they played a dirge, and as this was a hundred years too soon, it was not a dirge by the Beatles, but rather, oh, It is great for our country to die. By James Percival and Alfred Delaney. I did try and find the words of the dirge for your edification and amusement. There is a lot of James Percival poetry on the internet. This includes a 20-page poem entitled The Suicide and a 120-page poem entitled Prometheus, as well as light-hearted and shorter poems such as Most of his poetry would, if set to music, qualify as a dirge. I lost the will to live searching for the precise context of this particular one. After the dirge, there was a benediction, then everyone popped off for a glass of wine and a canapé. Everyone, that is, apart from the journalists, who hastily transcribed the speech and sent it off to the four corners of America. 
Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is today revered alongside the founding documents of the Republic, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. While those documents are written and legal in nature, Lincoln's effort was oral and designed to inspire. And it did inspire. It inspired the rebirth of America after the Civil War, a rebirth that led to America soon becoming the dominant world power that it is today. Lincoln's act of renewal and reconciliation was the foundation of this rebirth, a rebirth that was necessary if the Union was to achieve its central war aim, which was to maintain the Union. The speech is now learnt by heart by almost American, every American schoolchild, quoted in various parts repeatedly, and most famously, although bizarrely, recorded by Margaret Thatcher. It's a wondrously and beautifully constructed speech. In tone, it is almost biblical. It resonates today. It achieved its purpose and its legacy endures. Yep, a worthy contender. Applause all round the room for Clive. Kit, what do you make of this one? I mean, it's a strong contender for me. Um, I think that uh, the Gettysburg Address is sort of one of the defining um, moments, certainly of, the, of American history, um, certainly of 19th century American history. Um, the one thing I would point out is that at the time, um, while we know it today as this great speech, it was very, very partisan. Um, and the reaction um, from the Democrats, because Lincoln was a Republican, is almost straight out of, um, of Fox News. Their response was that the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat and dishwatery utterances of a man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. So, Clive, what do you make of the partisanship? Uh, he was also slated by the Manchester Guardian, who were very, very pro-slavery and the Confederacy, and by the Times as well in England. And he was you know, attacked on every front. Immediately afterwards, Everett's speech was proclaimed as the great speech and not Lincoln's. But I think it's because Lincoln's was pocket-sized and could be carried around that it really took off. More, not so much from the people who heard it, but, but from the people who read it subsequently. I've actually got the, uh, the Times of London's quote, which is, the ceremony at Gettysburg was rendered ludicrous by some of the luckless sallies of that poor President Lincoln. Um, so mm. the British press were not kind, but I think it does rank as... What do you expect from a Murdoch paper, though? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Holmes? I, I've always, um, I mean, with apologies to Heather as well here, but I always found this a bit dreary, to be honest. I do have to ask for Heather's response, because Heather looks slightly pained as the Cockney version is uh, being done there as the only American in the room. <laughs> I always pictured Lincoln with more of a southern twang, but it, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> points. He came from Illinois. Did you have to do it at, like at school? Though. Did you have to wear the, the pipe and the hat and, and do a little beard and do the speech and stuff like that? I was lucky and did not, which is good because my sideboard growing is lacking. And um, I don't look good in that hat. So, but we did get, we did have a lot of reading about this, especially in grade school. I was personally hoping for an accent of Daniel Day-Lewis coming, coming through. <laughs> <laughs> I 
You, 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 you may have that. Bit of method. You, you may have noticed one that Clive, Clive's slightly limited in his repertoire of accents. <laughs> was was there a, was there a, a genuine legacy to this, Clive? I, I think that there is a genuine legacy because, simply because this has become such an iconic piece in American culture. America is not a country like Britain or France or any of the European countries. It is a nation that was created and a nation that is that people have gone to and they look for a concept, something to hold on to, the flag, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Gettysburg Address. Those are the symbols of America, which aren't in people's natural DNA, but become part of the DNA of the country. Sorry, the last question. The war was still going on when it was being, the Civil War was still going on when he delivered it. Yeah, he had another two years to crack on. It, it did, by the sounds of it, it didn't have any effect on shortening the war. It didn't shorten the war, but it marks the point when the Union was pretty... It was The victory of the Union after that point was, if not inevitable, it was pretty sure to happen. And that was the point from which the whole concept of reunion kicked in and looking to restoration after the war. I think you're looking for a great deal from a speech if you wanted to end the war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this wasn't given at the Battle of Gettysburg as well. This was given at the inauguration of the, the, the cemetery, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was four, four, months, four months after the battle. I just wondered if the, the spirit of reconciliation, which, which covered it, you know, had any sort of, it, forced people to rethink and had any positive effects immediately. I mean, uh, uh, is part of the enduring effect and something that carried on afterwards. And I'm sure that this speech is studied even in some of the session estates today. That, that was part of the point of the language used in it, in that for two and a half years, both sides had had political complexity rammed down their throats. They'd had that all they'd been able to read in the newspapers was the complex overtones of what are we fighting for? Why are we fighting? What's going to happen at this point? Nowhere ever do you run for presidency in the middle of a civil war. That's nuts. What you need is oratory that is simple enough so that everybody understands what you're saying. And that's what he delivered in that. They were simple concepts that were um, they, they, they weren't um, sterile, but nobody could pick fault with what he was trying to achieve. He was just saying, no, nah, let's just come together. It's and once again, Marin encapsulates in a few words what I've been bullshitting about for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but we like the Cockney bullshitting. We love it. Love <laughs> it. We are getting into the home straight. We have uh, one, two, three, four left. Four, I think. Let's go... Let's go girl next. Let's go Kate. Hello. So I um, I thought this would be a two-horse race. I thought it's on the beaches and I have a dream neck and neck down the home straight. And I uh, couldn't compete on equal terms. So I've done something very different, which I don't often do. So I've gone out on a limb. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler the speech of Hamlet, haply the most famous line of English word, a study of human nature, easy remembered, a meditation 
so deep, to die, to sleep. Suicide and other themes important. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks writ this famous muse. All have heard the words, spoke by Gilgood, Andrew Scott or Tennant, Olivier Cumberbatch or Branagh. Quoted perchance by some famous leader, many have uttered that question most great. And when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, longer still remembered this speech will be, as will the works which were by it inspired. These words will bear the whips and scorns of time. Reference to this great work are much and many on stage, in theatre and telly, in Doctor Who, the theme to MASH, Last Action Hero, Star Wars, The Minions. From a king in New York to the Lion King, these very lines inspired great works of art in literature, poetry, painting, sculpture. Pop music and classical people make reference to these wondrous lines and Shakespeare. And thus, to our question this night, we seek to know Hath the speech of Hamlet reached further and affected more profoundly than any other word? There's the rub. Well, I say yes. I say this monologue surely must be the greatest speech ever spoke. I say to you, to be or not to be is as much a part of our fair language as, all right, fancy a cuppa, or Bob's your uncle, innit, me old marker. Shakespeare rocks. Uh, I'll just because this is coming up in my moment. That speech uh, actually is quite um, revealing about that period in history, in that it challenges the idea of suicide and whether or not. So until that point, until the point from the 1580s to the 1620s, it was just down as being absolutely horrific and the church, hello Bertie, the church had decided that you would be smited in hell and they were like dragging your dead body through the streets if you did it and stuff. And that started really the beginning, like the path towards all the French people trying to decide if actually suicide wasn't the ultimate act of freedom. It was the first time that people started recognising it as a mental health thing and actually discussing, is death a better option? So it's Yeah, it was really philosophical philosophical wasn't it but it's not his philosophy and Shakespeare's jumping on a bandwagon with that speech not saying it wasn't well written but he is he's talking talking like about a wider thinking at the time he didn't come up with it sorry yeah no I think I think it's it's a reflection of ideas at the time and it's it's survived and it's you know it's often referenced and so, yeah. Interesting. You mentioned it. It appears in Star Wars. I, I, I was just trying to Google that as well. But whereabouts? Oh, God, I can't remember. I Googled it like three and a half weeks ago. I mean, it seems to suggest that when Yoda says, do or do not, there is no truck, that it's a sort of paraphrase <laughs> of that. But I've only just skimmed the internet to see that. Isn't there something where somebody's holding the head of somebody when they're putting them back together? I've not seen Star Wars, so I, I sorry. Um, isn't there? Is it R two D two or 
I don't even know who's playing it. R2D2 only speaks in bleeps. Okay, but one of them doesn't. One of them get broken. Yeah, but R2D2 still in the Shakespeare. Could be. I mean, together or something, and they hold the the head and like Hamlet holds the skull. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah. I suppose just terms in terms of. The, the rules, Alex, there's no reason why, although this was delivered fictionally, why it couldn't be counted. Uh, it's just a speech. And that is a speech. Okay. So it's not as shit as Lockie asking for all pubs and winning. I'm never going to let that. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that. Don't you shrug at me. You know you were fucking pushing your luck and you got away with it, you swine. Go on, you can go next. Go on, Lockie. Wow. Do I not do I not get talking? Oh go on then if you want to pick a fight. Am I not a judge? <laughs> <laughs> I will have my <sighs> words. Shall I'm, I I'm, I'm unmuted the now though, so um, King you Henry get... the Fifth. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Lucky, you're ruining my fucking You're a real judge too. Look, I made a wood. <laughs> go, 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 do it. Do your thing. <laughs> Shall I compare thee to Henry V? Crispin's Day speech is more lovely and more warlike. Oh, yeah. Rough winds do shake the prose of Tudor realms and globes last least half too short a date. Yet the hot eye of heaven shines on Shakespeare's gold complexion not dimmed, even as every fair and fair sometimes decline by chance of nature's changing course untrimmed. The bar's eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of thou fairest thou art. Uh, yet while media may wander in his shade, while internal lines in terminus growest, this one man can breathe and eyes and see on stages past, present and free. Yeah, I prefer Henry V, so fuck Hamlet. Yeah, uh, Shakespeare in Henry V, I'll give him that. You see, that's so much better without Lockie talking over it. <laughs> I'll give him uh, Lockie's not going to win tonight, it doesn't even, matter what he's doing. Even I, I even quite like Richard III's Bosworth battle sort of address. Is that when he hits the floor and goes, oh, fuck. Wait, no, it's the bit where, they, where he, the, the bit where he brilliantly decides I will win the battle by charging in. He goes, you know, the, let's go at it pell mell, uh, like hand in hand to heaven or something to hell or something like that. Oh, didn't work out yeah, well. I mean, I'm not going to argue against Shakespeare, but um, I, I, whether or not Hamlet's soliloquy is is the greatest, it's always held it's up. It's very but. moving, Hamlet. Hamlet's one. Is, but I don't know. I think. Are we not? I really hope you are, otherwise you're both fucking fired. I really hope we're looking something more than the words tonight. I think we're looking for yeah. meaning. We, we are. I'm looking at context, certainly. Get people to pay for a theatre ticket for me um, doesn't compare yeah. to some of the ones we've heard. But I'm not... Even, once, I'm not Henry V is just so full of them as well. It's like, under the breach and all. Yeah, once oh. more to the breach is... Um, <laughs> Uh, I just want to apologise for calling Lockie a wanker because he can beat me up and the rest of you can't. You're pretty much as tall as he is, but he probably can beat you up. Lockie, would you like uh, to speak now? I don't, I don't think of you in those terms. I mean, it, like, come on, guys. Uh, we can all get along here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, like maybe a couple of you, I, I too brought out the speeches that changed the world uh, book and had a look and quite like the look of uh, Nikita oh, Khrushchev. Of history um, hat, Simon Sebag Montefiore, who we love. He's been nice. on twice. He's really nice. Yeah, um, so I, I quite like Nikita Khrushchev in there, but then I thought, no, 
fuck it, that's not got the hairs tingling, and that's that's what I'm going for. I'm I'm going for something that fucking grip me, uh, and so I'm going full egg chasing. Um, and I had a few options uh, with regarding um, sports and, and rugby in particular, um, but I was drawn specifically, especially in a Lions year, because uh, we are in one. It's the the, the British and Irish Lions are, are going to are going to do some damage to some South Africans uh, this year, and and there were options and really quite emotional um, options. But I've gone with a fifty-seven uh, year old Scotsman called Jim, um, and he. Speech, uh, that he gave uh, shortly after 11 o'clock GMT on the 21st of June 1997. Uh, 1997 19, 1917? I'm sorry, I'm quite PhD focused at the moment. 1997. <laughs> um, uh, Jim Telfer, uh, to be precise, he gave a speech to half a rugby team, um, 11 blokes ahead of a sports game. Um, from an oratorical point of view it's absolutely astonishing it's absolutely perfect uh, it's incredibly emotional it's been analyzed to death by kind of anyone with with an interest in sports psychology or or kind of motivational speaking um and it's known as the everest um speech uh, it was it was unscripted but it was rehearsed and it's a hundred percent from the heart and i know it's going to feel like there's not very much at stake here you know it's a sports game but actually kind of rugby union and particularly the blokes that he was talking to these are the forwards these are elite forwards you do ask blokes to put their bodies on the line um here uh, for nothing more than pride uh, essentially pride and pride and joy um so it's up to you whether those things matter really um context wise let's do a bit of this i mean the speech was to the squad forwards ahead of the first lions test in south africa uh, in 1997. Now, there were rugby games and there were Lions tests, and, and Lions tests are, are different. Um, for the uninitiated, uh, the, the, the four nations of the British Isles uh, put together a touring side to the Southern Hemisphere every four years um, to play against either New Zealand, Australia, or South Africa. Fine. It's, so it's a bit like the World Cup in that sort of sense, in terms of time span. The men of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland get a crack at this every four years. What takes it up a level, even from the World Cup, is the response from the team that they're playing. Because um, they, they only get a crack at this every 12 years. All right. So it's literally a, a, a once in a career go at the best that the British Isles can can send you. So they're pumped up to and beyond World Cup final levels. And so essentially what it is, is like a scratch team from the British Isles has to take on, you know, the best that the Southern Hemisphere can offer. And and to be truthful, they don't they don't win that often, the the Lions. But the first one that I saw um, was was this tour in 1997 in South Africa, um, and and it, it left a mark on me. Put it that way. The oratory of the speech is is just wonderful. And and uh, around rugby, especially at kind of an, an elite level in any given match, teams are quite evenly matched. Usually, you know, you've just got really big, strong boys uh, who want to smash each other, and 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 that's kind of what you expect so actually it's the top eight inches it's what's going on up here it's what's going on emotionally it's what's going on in your mind that will turn good players into champions or lions test winners uh, and so jim telfer's speech itself was was just spine tingling because it was to the forwards and they were his boys he was the assistant coach with a special responsibility to, for the forwards uh, and they've got to win this physical 
battle up front. Uh, and so, you know, he, he sits them down and he says the easy bit has passed. You know, selection for the test team is the easy bit. You have an awesome responsibility. Uh, on the eight individual forwards' shoulders. Awesome responsibility. This is your fucking Everest, boys. Very few ever get a chance in rugby terms to get for the top of Everest. You have the chance today. Being picked is the easy bit. To win for the Lions in a test match is the ultimate. But you'll not do it unless you put your bodies on the line. And this is the, he also makes use of silence. He'll just pause uh, from time to time and let little bits sink in. And it's almost like he's lost his train of thought or something like that, but then he hits it up. With, with something else again. You'll not do it unless you put your bodies on the line. Everyone Jackie for 80 minutes. Defeat doesn't worry me. I've had it often and so have you. It's performance that matters. You put in the performance, you'll get what you deserve. No luck attached to it. If you don't put it in, then we're second raters. They don't respect you. They don't rate you. The only way to be rated is to stick one on them, to get right up in their face and turn them back, knock them back, outdo what they do, outjump them, outscrum them, outrup them, outdrive them, outtackle them until they're fucking sick of you. Remember the pledges you made. Remember how you depend on each other, every face, teams within teams, rucks, scrums, lineouts, ruck ball, tackles. All right. And then he pulls out a few things that have been said in the South African press, not rating these Lions players as well. But yeah, don't forget, these are, these are elite athletes. These are at the top of the British Isles. Pecking order, you know, got World Cup winners, future World Cup winners in that team, people like Martin Johnson, Lawrence Delalio, uh, they're, they're there as well. And Telfer says they're better than you've played against so far. They are better individually or they wouldn't be there. So it's an awesome task you have. It'll only be done if everyone commits themselves now. You're privileged. You're the chosen few. Many are considered, but few are chosen. They don't think, fuck all of us, nothing. We have to make up the fucking numbers. No one's going to do it for you. You have to find your own solace, your own drive, your ambition, your own inner strength, because the moment's arrived for the greatest game of your fucking life. Right, And at the end of that, there's a 10 second or so pause of just stunned silence as these enormous men, uh, and they, they, you know, six foot four, it's a plus, they're huge. And these are the forwards as well. So they're the biggest, strongest, hardest, best looking, smartest, funniest, um, much like myself. Uh, but they're visibly moved as well, and 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 they're in the room, and you see these you see these huge men kind of put themselves back together for a second and put themselves back in the room, and there's some there's some there's some audible deep breaths as they kind of put themselves together, and it's the English boys who sort of stand up first, and Jason Leonard stands up, and, and Martin Johnson, the team captain, has a bit of a stretch, uh, and but the Irish boys are still taking a moment or so to process this and you know Keith Wood is there inspirational hooker great forward um as one of the other players sort of just rub his head to put him back in the game um but it's, it's it has a remarkably profound effect on these guys and then the proofs in the pudding because they they then fronted up against probably the most feared pack in world rugby the world cup champions as they were and beat him on the day 25-16 and went on to win that series um, and I love it because, you know, it it's, it's kind of relates to me. I'm a forward, I'm a pack leader. Uh, and so I have to, you know, try and G my guys up. You know, we're playing against old Brock Leans on Saturday. I don't think I'll quite hit the Everest um, speech, but as a kind of inspirational moment, a kind of thing to go and make you want to put your body on the line. Where do you go beyond this? Um, and so it's a remarkable emotional speech. It's, it, it, it hoiks people in. And if you ever get a chance to see it, I defy you not to have your heads 
uh, stand on end. Good on Lockie. I'm glad we had a sports one. Um, I am. Holmes, you're into sport. Not necessarily that sport, but surely you can appreciate. I mean, a little bit. I mean, it's, it's almost identical to the talk my dad gave me before my first day at Comprehensive, to be honest. So it, <laughs> I can see where it's going from. Um, no, I like, I mean, I have a complicated relationship with rugby. I used to play it. I, I like it as a sport. What has really put me off are the posh twat southern arseholes that sort of pretend to like it and are very vocal about it especially around things like the Lions tour, which it's almost like the fucking second coming, if you ever hear them bang on about it. And it's really hard in my mind to disassociate those from the sport, which has fallen me to get less and less interested in it as the years have gone by. But, um, I mean, I think as a speech, by the sounds of it, it certainly certainly had an effect. Absolutely. I mean, like, you, effect. yeah, I mean, just, just see the guys in the room. Like, I mean, Delalio is quite an emotional fella anyway. And, you know, he, he he played in World Cup finals and he always said that the 97 Lions tour was the pinnacle of his career. Yeah, you know, he, he won a World Cup, but the 97 Lions tour was the pinnacle of his career. And this was the first test and this was the first game. And, you know, just just firing the guys up for that. Um, and and the, the man himself, Jim Telfer, had a very distinguished coaching career. He coached the Lions before as kind of head coaching. He was assistant coach in this kind of way. But um, but but with great pedigree and an experience and ability to to grip you and get you and fire you up, and he did. And uh, they ploughed into the South African pack, which is no easy task uh, at all. So it's a hell of a hell of a job. Okay, nothing more for me. Yep. Um, I do I do love stories of uh, inspirational hookers, um, particularly when it involves wood. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing that you've, you've hit on there, which which no one else has, is the use of silence in speeches. That 10 seconds afterwards is actually some of the more impactful. It's not just the, the getting people going. It's actually giving them time to process it and let it sink in. Um, and also the power of sport, uh, which is something that we probably don't talk about uh, very often. You know, it's sport and war is, is really what sort of drives people to, to do crazy things, it seems. Yeah, I mean, Telfer himself was a teacher uh, before, like beforehand. This is, you know, back in the old amateur days of rugby. Um, so everyone had a, a job. <laughs> and so he was a he was a chemistry teacher. But he's uh, he always got, kind of prided himself on, you know, what, what, what kind of the additional element of being a teacher was. You effectively on stage, you're a performer uh, as well. So your ability to, you know, deliver genuine oratory. Uh, enhanced your ability as a teacher as well, and so he he used silence from time to time, but he used keywords and he used and he up the tempo to to hook people uh, as well, and and just had a talent for it. Uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, the the '97 Lions tour is obviously quite famous. Um, although South Africa was a fading power because Francois Pignard had stepped down and was well, dropped, sorry, controversially the year before, things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting candidate. Excellent. Charlie, what have you got for us? I've got a treat for you. Okay. I'm, I'm very excited to, to put this forward after hearing what we've heard so far from some of our other people, and I will relate back to that afterwards. Um, it's fair, perhaps, to say that choosing a speech from one of Shakespeare's historical plays disqualifies my entry from being history's greatest speech, but 
thank God for historical fiction, right? Because we don't know what King Henry V said to rouse his heavily outnumbered troops on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, but we have Shakespeare's reimagining. The St. Crispin's Day speech from Act 4, Scene 3 of Henry V has entered contemporary usage at various times since it was first performed at the turn of the 17th century, and in those moments, arguably, it was history's greatest speech. Nelson used it on the eve of the Battle of the Nile in 1798, referring to his captains as his band of brothers. During the American Civil War, the Confederate Army marched to a song beginning with the words, We are a band of brothers. Laurence Olivier read this speech over the wireless at the start of World War II, and Winston Churchill was so impressed that he asked the greatest stage actor of all time to produce a film of the play and was inspired by these words when he wrote his speech in tribute to the few. Its production, this film funded by Churchill's government, in fact, Olivier's Henry V, released in 1944 to coincide with the Allied invasion of Normandy, would go on to be nominated for four Oscars, with Olivier himself receiving the Academy's special award in 1946 for his outstanding achievement as actor, producer and director in bringing Henry V to the screen. Most familiar with those gathered here in the Mary Rose will be the phrase borrowed from this speech for Stephen Ambrose's book of the E Company of 101st Airborne Division, adapted for the beloved miniseries Band of Brothers. Less favourable, perhaps, but still historically important uses of the speech occurred in the Situation Room of George W. Bush's Florida legal team when they joined arms and recited the speech together during the 2000 general election recount. The Vote Leave team inserted names of various members of their own team in the place of Henry's generals when they read it to get all pumped up for Brexit. Whatever you think of the circumstances, these words have echoed throughout our history, and they will reverberate again in our future. But why? The St. Crispin's Day speech is a call to arms for underdogs, an army severely lacking in numbers going into battle. Henry's words bind his men together in loyalty, and the hope that it's better to fight with a small group of dedicated, brave men than a large number who don't want to fight. A band of brothers leadership through comradeship. The king is not asking his men to do anything that he will not do himself. Themes of remembrance, the brotherhood of soldiers lasting as long as they shall live. Henry V probably didn't use these words to forge intimacy with his troops, but do you know who did? Well, probably every military and political leader since Shakespeare wrote these words down. I'm not going to argue any more for this as history's greatest speech. Listen to the words yourself and tell me that you would not follow me to the ends of the earth. I'm going to be using the most modern version of the language that I can. The only note on the language here is that in this context, vile means lowborn and gentle is its opposite. Henry is in conversation with his generals who've just pointed out that they are outnumbered and it would be nice if they had some of the men sitting on their asses back at home to fight with them. What's he that wishes so, my cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin, if we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honour. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. 
I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honour, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith my cuz wish not a man from England. I would not lose so great an honour, as one man more methinks would share from me the best hope I have. Do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, and through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his, na- his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed. They were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Thank you. And scene. Do you know what? Brilliantly, uh, Josh has just lip-synced that whole speech. Yes! (laughs) You have a kindred spirit in the room. Oh, I love it. And I found out, I actually didn't really appreciate, but I just found out that St. Crispin's Day is the day after my husband's birthday. So now every year on his birthday, I'm going to rock that speech and annoy him. Do you know what, as well, if you want to hear that speech done differently, uh, back just about the time that we did the Band of Brothers reunion last year, Damien Lewis set it up with a load of them where they, it's on YouTube. They did it. I watched it. It's brilliant. With raising money for actors' awareness or something for funding. But Mm. even the cast of Band of Brothers is delivering a different line, basically, um, of the speech, and it's brilliant. But very well done. I just... I'm going to go to Kit first because he's less likely to philistine your ass like Holmes is going to when we get to him. Yeah, I, I can't really go on about how the, the, the Christmas Day speech uh, from Henry V is the best Shakespeare speech, in my opinion, and then diss Charlotte for giving it as, as an option, <laughs> really. Yeah, you've got to just say nice things now, Kit. You've already set it up. Come on. And, uh, the okay. problem is we've, we've only got Alex left. Uh, for, I think, Alex, that's right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know that we haven't got Martin Luther King or JFK yet. So you've booted out one of the great speech givers. I think Laurence Olivier is, would definitely be up there. 
I chose not to go down the Olivier route because I don't want to be shouting. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't mind it as speech go. I guess where I've got technical te issues on technicalities about it tonight because when Kate had her go and we checked whether we could have Shakespeare speeches, Alex, you said yes. But then you sort of said something at the end, a sort of throwaway mark about, remark about, you know, shouldn't really... We should mark them down though if people have to pay to hear them. So we're we're back in this situation Not now, so aren't we? And also because the reason was entertainment, can it be the greatest speech? But then that's of a historical event. It's a reimagining of a historical event. So it's not like Shakespeare. It's not like a And if it's then been used, if that has then been taken and used in genuine moments of historical importance, it's it that then becomes historically important it's not just a play it's it captured the imagination of generals and leaders and politicians and became the thing that they referenced i guess because it it, it didn't happen you know in the historical place at the time that it's supposed to it slightly lacks a bit of context to me which the others do which the others do have of course i mean but a speech of some manner i think was given i think he did address certain divisions of the army at Agincourt before he did the whole in the name of Jesus and Mary ban four accounts of the Battle of Agincourt of people who actually were close enough to know about it. And, well, you know, it's a medieval thing, so they never, if, if they wrote it down, it wouldn't be exactly what he said. We could charitably assume that Shakespeare might have decided to take some themes. <laughs> no, but it I is Shakespeare. I, for me, it's oh, it's more allowable than Hamlet because it is a great event in English history, and someone, and now it, someone historically in history has subsequently lent words to it, which is an interesting one. But then I'm not judging. Okay. Right. Okay. So that leaves me, and I literally finished writing this about 15 seconds ago, and I'm really hoping my internet holds out. Uh, for it because uh, otherwise I'm going to let everyone down. Right, okay. I might start. Uh, that's good doing it, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Wait, my internet's usually fine, thank you very much. I think he's referring to... Uh, the, the speech writing uh, Right, okay. <clears throat> I didn't get it off of Wikipedia, though. I actually have it in my head. My 49-word speech is in my head, and it is... My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the army of the Phoenix Legions, <laughs> loyal servant to the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. 49 words, mic drop, done. No, I'm lying. I really am lying. Gonna have to put old far more than that. Although that is the best speech in movie history, uh, which we could potentially argue at another date. Right. My nomination is the Martin Luther King um, speech that he gave at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, more colloquially known as the I Have a Dream speech. Why? Because it's fucking poetry. Because he was, in a world of people proclaimed as legends, just a man on a mission to make life fairer for everyone. Because it was the defining moment of the civil rights movement and because it resonates still on a global level. The speech was given in 1963 at this mass demonstration for the civil rights movement that came in the wake of legislation proposed by President Kennedy, who I'm not sorry hasn't been nominated tonight. This speech was the culmination of a process of evolution. Parts had been rehearsed and ideas 
themes and bits of it had been incorporated from the Bible and to mirror his fellow activists, to show a unity of thought, not because he was plagiarising. There is no single draft of the speech given because he was freestyling to an extent. The final ish version was drafted with the help of Stanley Levison and Clarence Benjamin in New York. Um, Jones said that the logistical preparations for the march were so burdensome that the speech was not a priority for us and that 12 hours before the march, Martin still didn't know what he was going to say. Technically, it uses three tropes. This is the bit Merrin will like. Voice merging, prophetic voice and dynamic spectacle. We've talked about using the words of others. This is not a bad thing in speeches. This is a recognised rhetorical tool. Voice merging is when you combine your own voice with your religious predecessors. Prophetic voice is using rhetoric to speak for a population or a people. And a dynamic spectacle is self-explanatory. He smashed all three of them out of the park giving this speech. He'd been referencing the dream, his dream, the American dream in speeches for about three years. But the passage that is now so famous was off the cuff. As he was nearing the end of the speech, African-American gospel singer Marlia Jackson shouted out to him from the crowd, tell him about the dream, Martin. He abandoned his prepared remarks and started preaching using the I have a dream line repeatedly as a rhetorical tool. The result was the most iconic speech ever given in the English language at the very least. It's a shining example of what you can do with words, not guns. He was big on this. As he said that day, we must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvellous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realise that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. But there has to be more to the greatest speech in history. It's not just about what is said, though in this case, the words, the structure, the delivery are exquisite. It's about who said it. In this case, someone who the establishment wanted to sit down and shut up and who absolutely refused, but who refused to meet them on their own violent field of play that would get him nowhere. It's about where they said it. On the steps of the freaking Lincoln Memorial in Washington, the capital of the nation in front of a quarter of a million civil rights campaigners, he took it to the doorstep of his opponents and he owned it. It's also about why they said it when they did. Here's what he said. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of calling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. This was not a ranty activist fueled by anger. This was a preacher, a measured man with a doctorate in systematic theology, because black America needed a voice and not just any voice. King believed in well-organized, non-violent process. He came to prominence because black America needed a smart, articulate voice, one that went toe to toe with the perpetrators of social injustice, all social injustice, because he wasn't just about African-Americans and played them at their own political game, bettered them. What did he want from this? Again, in his own words, there are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? 
We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Take note. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. When we think about the greatest speech in history, you also have to think about what saying these words cost the speaker. Ultimately, in this case, his life. Eventual assassination might not be an essential prerequisite for giving the greatest speech in history, but the fact that it should cost you something to get up and say it should put you ahead. He was the target of repeated violence, and this was a time when nobody was safe from assassins. The first attempt on his life had come in 1958. He gave this speech a few weeks before Kennedy was assassinated. King himself was killed in April 1968 and Bobby Kennedy a few weeks after that, and yet he'd carried on giving speeches. And finally, it's about the legacy of their words. For me, the greatest speech of all time has to continue to speak to people. This fired the civil rights movement. The March on Washington put pressure on the Kennedy administration to advance its civil rights legislation in Congress. In the first year following the speech alone, Alabama integrated its schools. The Alabama Project begins, which leads to the voter registration movement and Selma. In the wake of the speech in the March, King was named Man of the Year by Time magazine for 1963. Then freedom libraries were established in Mississippi. 1964, you get the Freedom Summer, striving for voter registration in, Mes in Mississippi and more equ equality in education. Malcolm X founds the organization of Afro-American unity. And then the Civil Rights Act. It banned discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Congress also passed the Economic Opportunity Act, which among other things, was a move towards additional civil rights for Native Americans. And at the Democratic Convention, Mississippi's Democratic Freedom Party challenged every single white representative there with a nominee of its own. In December, 1964, King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, the youngest ever person to receive it. Since the 60s, the Library of Congress has added it to the United States National Recording Registry. An inscribed marble pedestal commemorates the location of King's speech at the Lincoln Memorial. Near the Potomac Basin in Washington, D.C., the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial was dedicated in 2011. The centerpiece is based on a line from the I Have a Dream speech. Out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. It features a 10-metre sculpture of King. In 2013, thousands gathered on the spot where he made this historic speech to commemorate the 50th anniversary, including former US presidents Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter and incumbent president Barack Obama. In 2016, the Treasury announced the back of the $5 bill would be redesigned to incorporate an image from King's speech. Is this not just an American thing, I hear you ask? No. He transcended race, nationality and his own lifetime. He was vocally opposed to apartheid. Nelson Mandela mirrored his nonviolent stars after his death in his own activism. He also inspired the 1965 adoption of the International Convention of the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which was ratified nearly a year after King's assassination and ensures that members outlaw hate speech and criminalise membership in organisations determined to be racist. But he has indirectly changed the world with what he preached that day in Washington far more. His philosophy of nonviolence and peace has inspired many examples of civil disobedience. His face and name are synonymous with peace and equality and are an emblem for hope among the oppressed. 
a park in Paris, a church in Hungary, a forest in Israel, a school in Ghana, and over 1,000 streets worldwide are named after this man. King said, as part of the speech, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. That dream has not been fully realised in America and it's 2021. His work is incomplete and our world is a poorer place for having him stripped from it. And yet these words have left a permanent impression on the next generation of African-Americans. I want to tell you about just one. He's been on this podcast. Mark Peterson was raised in Selma, a small town made famous by Dr. King, owing to a protest march that crossed the Edmund Pellis Bridge into legend. He left, went to Harvard, made good, and then he came back to give back. He spends his time now creating affordable quality housing and helping people to work themselves into a position to buy it from him. He doesn't remember when Dr. King passed through his town, but the legacy of, of him was everywhere. I will let him tell you. Chance to uh, grow up in a society which just a lifetime earlier did not exist in the way it existed for me, mm -hmm. uh, gave me the opportunity to do a lot of what Dr. King wanted, which is to have a dream and then to actually achieve it to have people look deep into my character uh, and judge me on that. Simply put by speechwriter Anthony Trendle, the right man delivered the right words to the right place, to the right people in the right place at the right time. It was words like the ones delivered at the Washington Monument on the 28th of August, 1963, that made a world superpower evaluate the way it operated. It led them on a different path. These words changed the world but they also set Mark and thousands of African-Americans like him on their path. America still needs to send millions more of them down that path. I want to leave you with Mark reciting some of those words here on History Hack a few months ago. We must continue to work with the faith that unarmed suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, Go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and the ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, though and even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. To, to me, that's a, one of the most powerful parts of that speech where he gives you a reason to fight for what is real in America, that dream. And that dream is uh, the opportunity to be an equal participating part of America's society, all of that society. Um, it's a real strong contender for me. Um, and the main reason is that one thing we've talked about tonight, some of the speeches we've had have had grains of hope. Um, when we talked about Agassiz, for example, things like that, but there were always at times of conflict. They were always trying to push things forward. This was a, a very different kind of conflict. But what he's talking about there is something that is resonant with everybody. Um, it is that idea of, of, of just 
humanity laid bare. Uh, and I think that is an incredibly powerful thing to be able to tap into using those techniques of rhetoric that Meron is so eloquently spoken about, using um, that poetry that we've seen from pr previous speeches um, and tapping all the way back into uh, historical um, speeches and taking elements from, from themes he's already picked up on. Um, it's, a, it's a strong contender for me. I don't have any questions. I, I agree with Kit. It's hard to pick holes in this one, to be honest. You know, you look at the words, the location, the size of the audience he was delivering it to, the almost immediate effect, and then also the legacy following that. It's, it's um, yeah, it's a really strong contender. For me, it's the fact that the iconic bit that everybody knows where he's repeating that I have a dream and that he freestyled that. He'd done it, he'd done it, he'd used the phrase, I have a dream before in speeches and that, but he hadn't just, it was like repeatedly landing punches at the establishment and he hadn't done that before, I don't think. Go on, Meryn. I, was, I, would, I have no dispute with this taking the crown. It's one that's discussed to death by speech writers and often because it's attributed solely to, to Martin Luther King, but the first seven paragraphs that set him up for Mahalia Jackson to say, tell them about the dream, were not written by King. They were written by his speechwriter, Clarence B. Jackson. And yeah. he almost taught King how to use anaphora, which is that let's iterate the same phrase over and over again. In there, you've got antithesis, litotes, metaphor, parallelism, um, direct address, enumeration, alliteration. It's got everything. It is a work of art, but it works because the audience is ready for the sermon. Yeah. And that is what King was born to do, was to preach. And there was something worth preaching. I, th I find it really funny that people bitch and moan about the fact that uh, there was someone else mentioned or said the words, I have a dream at a church in, in 55, a woman, mm. civil rights movement, and that the opening paragraphs mirror quite closely another yeah. preacher. Does that not say to you that it's what he's preaching? We are all one. We are one people. And it's okay to borrow each other's words and incorporate each other's words and take bits of my speech and go out there and preach it yourself. It's the whole fucking point. So this like, that was, that was done quite closely. Josh is nodding. The, 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 I was just going to say the existential. I just agree. <laughs> there's an existential um genius here in the, the the moment that martin luther king says i have a dream he removes color from his his argument because in your dreams a lot of us do dreaming color but but if you take somebody say i have a dream okay what's inside that person's head has no color so he, he takes color out of it says i just want to be recognized for who i am my my external body has nothing to do with this it's everything in here that matters it but is absolutely well people don't realize about him is that he was not just all about african-americans no no every american to have a fair shot and that's what that's why it's a fucking tragedy that he got assassinated in 68 because that's where he was going I, I mean, I don't actually, I, I feel like I don't really know enough about him. I just appreciate his words. So I won't say anything about him, but uh, I would like to talk about him. <laughs> I do like to talk about him. Definitely listen to Mark's episode as well. And yeah. if you haven't seen Selma, watch it, because that's okay. 64 or 65. So that's after this speech. But it shows you where he's at and what he's become and the burden on his shoulders. And the fascinating thing about Selma, though, is that in the movie, 
they do not use any genuine Martin Luther King speech. They didn't have the rights to them. Yeah. What they do is they use the techniques of rhetoric that he mastered so well to create the sense. Um, and David Alloway was fantastic in that. Oh, he just, uh, why did he not get an Oscar? I think I looked it up and whoever got an Oscar that year, I was like, that wasn't as good. Excellent. Okay, we have been going, oh my God, we have been going for three and a half hours now. Let's shut the fuck up. Let's just, let's quickly buzz around the room. Uh, Alina has left us. Uh, I think everyone else is still here while the judges make their decision. Heather? Um, I really am between three people, but between Clive and Josh and Alex, they were all exceptionally wonderful. Marcus? I might go for, well, it's not going to be Shakespeare, the Henry V is close. Um, there's obviously the, the three predictables, so I might go for something different. I think somebody like um, Chris's, something le- slightly less casual, slightly more motivating um, for the people that were there as the audience and uh, less well-known could be quite interesting. Cool. Lockie? Yeah, I'm going to stay in lane actually and I and, and think I reckon that kind of the value to the people that endured the great war of um of a, of a nod through the Meningate opening sem- uh, ceremony was quite valuable so I'm going to go with that Dorman uh it's either MLK or Dallas Caspas um both for both similar different ways um I think Dallas Caspas kind of gets a gets a bad rep but when we won't consider the time he is saying what he is saying in it's extremely important and he was one of the first to do it and then mlk needs no further comments <laughs> jane um firstly mlk out of the big three it's just no question that should be the winner out of the other choices and some fantastic attempts today I have to go with Merrin's just to turn him into a genius with that speech and breaking it down for us, which mostly confuses people. But he was a gibbering moron. Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chris, who still can't believe someone picked him. <laughs> Talking of gibbering morons. Um, <laughs> um, I think... Uh... <laughs> Uh, a speech has to uh, resonate through time and in, um, inspire people and to, to use um, sort of their styles and stuff. And so for three reasons, I'm going for Pericles. One, he did that. Two, I'm not arguing with Edith Hall. And three, I'm definitely not arguing with Alina. So, yeah, Pericles. It's hard to fault some of that logic. I'm going to go for Princess Marcus because his speech was basically mine. So... <laughs> Uh, that was not that was uh, <laughs> yeah, logic okay cool. yeah. um i think yeah like heather a couple i'm t- i'm torn like um i loved charlie charlie's henry the fifth interpretation of course always um but i did i did really enjoy i'm gonna have to reciprocate i did really enjoy Lockie's rugby talk I think you know you could I think watching Gibb as well you could see the passion and I think that speech just came across I can I can almost visualize being in that room and being that person like right let's go to it let's get it done and that motivation so yeah I think Charlie and Lockie I think uh where are we 
Zach, who cannot speak because he's now uh, a functioning mute for the rest of the evening, says that he would like to give Beth an honourable, oh, Charlie an honourable mention, but not quite for com- almost converting him to Shakespeare for the stellar delivery, but Josh is his winner. Uh, Clive? Well, on the basis that she knows what she's talking about, it has to be Merrin's choice of Eric Cantona because Merrin knows what rhetoric's about and that's the one she plumped for. Excellent. Uh, Kate? Um, the, I think there were lots of strong contenders. Um, obviously, Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill. But I'm going to go for Elizabeth first. I'm going to go for um, Heather's choice because it was the first. Cool. We are all over the place tonight. I'll go for Josh because uh, is he the only one where his guy probably would have got his nuts cut off and stuffed down his throat? If it had gone the other way, um, quite possibly. So I'm going to go. I think that guy had balls and luckily still had them afterwards for getting up and saying what he did. It might just be that everyone had nodded off by the time he got to that part, though. If Tim Collins got um, arrested by Saddam, it would have been pretty nasty. But yes. Josh? Uh, It has to be MLK. Cool. Okay. Uh, Is that everyone? Merrin? Maximus Dismiss Meridius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> has that got something to do with how sexy Russell Crowe looked delivering it? Might have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if, I'm, if I have to pick one, it's Henry V. The, and and it's, it's because of its lyrical quality. I think there is so, so much weight to MLK that you can't hear it without putting it into political context, whereas Henry V is just, oh man, just sit back and let it flow over you. Flow. Brilliant. Uh, I, I quite like that Chris and Alina now, it's like fucking Greece and Cyprus on Eurovision, isn't it? Every week. It's unashamed and not caring. I, I don't think she would have voted for boats and Jutland, so I don't think she would have voted for me this time. Uh, I'll just see if she's... I started Thanks, babe. (laughs) Massive. To be fair, Chris, um, I have to admit you chose a great choice for Jutland. But um, also, for some reason, the signal from Scapa Float for the Scotland of the Fleet the fleet is stuck in my head. Just the simple and brilliance of it. Sink them all, the fuckers. Something along those lines? (laughs) No, no, it was actually really coded. It's really coded. (laughs) <laughs> right, let's get this judging done before Holmes nods off with all the boat talk. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm more likely to fuck off because of the boat talk, not nod off, to be honest. Okay. There we go. Um, <laughs> right, it's, 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 it makes you nod off, right? It's, it's uh, yeah. Well, we've got it's a, it's a unanimous top three this week. So I'll, uh, I'll announce third and second, and Kit, as it's his first time judging, will have the honour of announcing the winner. So in third place, it's Beth. With Pluma. <laughs> Yay, Granddaddy <laughs> Pluma! Second place, it's Zach with Churchill. And then Kit. Zach. And in first place, it could only be Alex and Martin Luther King. Boom! You know, I think this is my first win, bitches. Mm. Well deserved. Yeah. But... Well deserved. Congratulations. Let's, let's face it, those two were nothing about delivery. They were all about the subjects chosen because you were the first two to pick them. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take. Are you, what, are you saying my delivery was shit? 
No, no, Zach, no Zach's was pretty shit. Um, <laughs> Beth was really good. <laughs> Let's put it like this. When we did the nominations for this, I mean, there were scientists saying that if, if we needed a new definition for the speed of light, the speed with which you jumped in for MLK. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think actually everyone did a, a terrific job. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm judging and I have to pay attention. I actually listened to James this week. Um, <laughs> so. you know what i think it is guys i think a few weeks off has done us good yeah yeah we've regrouped mm. and it's done us really good so we'll do the same again we'll come back next month uh, and we'll do mm. something a bit more light next month we're going to do history's greatest scam <laughs> i mean most ridiculous Ooh. it's got to be the most outlandish ridiculous fucking plan ever and no you can't have the Battle of the Somme, even though it's <laughs> absolutely criminal. Uh, no, I, so actually, if you take the big guns out then, because as you say, like Zach and I were like hyenas on those two, then Beth comes out with the top of everybody else, like in a sort of in the championship level. Yeah, um, honourable <laughs> mention to Shakespeare, um, which yeah, was a sort of very, very close up there. But uh, yeah, Beth uh, beat old Abe. Uh, really do you know nice. what? I'm going to choose to ignore Alex and uh, and Zach. So really, I won today. Have <laughs> <laughs> it printed on a t-shirt by tomorrow. Well can done, claim, Josh. Can I claim a popular vote? Yes, you can. You can claim the people. <laughs> fair, and that, yeah. and that's, like like for that's how Gillingham win the Premier League. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm take yes, it. Josh, you may. You may claim the popular vote. And, and, and I'll take the sports personality of the, uh, of the year. <laughs> No, do, doesn't Merrin do that with the Quintona one, though? Oh, just... What? Quintona? With the what, James? Cantona, <laughs> dear boy, Cantona. Lockie could have the slightly patronising local hero sports personality one. <laughs> <laughs> one where everybody fucks up and makes a cup of tea. Cantona? Oh, yeah. Oh, Quintona. Yeah, it doesn't rhyme, does it? I need to warn you, James, that Eric Cantona... Listen for everybody who mispronounces his name and then searches for them. <laughs> and then Kung Fu kicks them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it wasn't about Carrie Katona then. That's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. We're going to bugger off because we've been here nearly four hours now. And if Bye, everybody. Everyone listening is losing the will to live. Yeah. We're not. It's like uh, one so of we'll my videos. See you next month for a slightly uh, less lengthy one hopefully uh, we're probably going to go and chat shit now for ages see you later you can help us at history hack by joining us via patreon it takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going and so if you could donate as little as three pounds a month it would be massively appreciated by all of us there's different levels because princess marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things so do have a look do join us there's uh, an exclusive facebook group as well and you could be part of all of it there's a key line just near when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. 
And here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.